Hello everybody, James here, and it's Franchise University with Shane Douglas, and you might be baffled as that after five episodes of finally using the proper name of this <laughs> podcast, because we just kept calling it the untitled one, but anyway, we've worked out it's Franchise University, with Shane Douglas himself. We don't really have any plugs, so we're just going to launch straight into the podcast. Morning, Shane. Yep. Good morning. How you doing? How's everybody out there doing today? Oh, well, I, I, I'm glad you asked because if you're wondering, everybody, if, uh, for the video, if you're wondering why I look pregnant, it's actually c- just because I got back from the gym and I've got a bit of a glow about me and still dripping slightly. But uh, that's pretty got much that motherly it. glow about you. I do, yes. The, the old maternal kind of thing going, actually, dude, you know, my skin's looking very nice today. So um, <clears throat> we're going to be talking today entirely about Terry Funk. Uh, oh, yeah. Before we do... Uh, and, and I'm sure a lot of people were wondering, hey, how come you didn't release a show about Terry Funk earlier? Uh, at least in the short term, we're sort of like bulk recording these podcasts a bit. So it was uh, a couple of days af- after we bulk recorded a few episodes that uh, Terry sadly passed away. Yeah. So we will be talking all about Terry in this episode. A few things beforehand that Shane, uh, that I want to ask Shane and Shane wants to talk about as well. The first thing was someone pulled us up uh, about a story about Dave Meltzer being in line in ECW. So uh, to clarify, the first time you met Dave Meltzer and the line for the paycheck. Yeah, uh, it's I, I could see it in my head vis- vis- visibly right now. He he, uh, There was a guy standing in front of me wide shoulders, shorter, black leather jacket, and dark curly hair. And I'm I'm sitting there, you know, for several minutes in line waiting for my check. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, like, which one of the boys is this? Like, I'm like going through the dress room. There. Nobody has curly hair like that. So I sort of walked out around and, like, looked from the side. And David was like, oh, hey, hey, franchise. We started talking, you know, friendly conversation. It was not like, hey, what are you doing here type of thing. Um, uh, But, like, afterwards, I, I, I wondered to myself, like, why was he there? You know, why was he standing in that line? Uh, you know, it's, and, and to be fair, like I, you know, I, I'm waiting for my check and I, as I remember sitting talking part of Chris or Bam or somebody or Taz, whoever, you know, bullshitting in line and, uh, you know, just sort of like you do it in any queue, you know, you're lined up and you're just, boom, he gets there and walks off. And I, you know, I can't say what they even talked about him and Paul when he got up, up there to the line, but that was the first time that I recall. Like laying eyes and meeting Dave Meltzer. Yeah, there was uh, I, I, some people had inferred that you had implied that Dave was picking up a check from Paul Heyman, but all you know is he was just in a line, essentially. Yeah, yeah. It, I don't know if I did infer it. Like I can't remember my exact words, but I, if I did, it certainly didn't mean to. Uh, again, we were standing in line to get paychecks. That's what Paul was doing. Had, you know, the checkbook out and you know, big, you know, big uh, ledger. And, uh, you know, each person get up there and, just, you know, just like anybody does when they're waiting in line at a wrestling show for their check. Uh, and I, I can't honestly say that I saw him take a check and walk away, you know, fold it up and put it into the thing and walk away. I didn't really pay attention. You know, it's sort of like, like I'm, I'm weird that way. If I come up behind somebody in line that's using like a credit card and they go to do their pin, like I always turn my head because I don't think like, I'm, you know, like, hey, what's their pin number? You know, I'm going to just feel awkward, you know? So like that kind of thing to me is a, that's a private conversation. If he was getting a check, how much he was being paid, it's really none of my business in that moment, right? It's a, hey, like Paul, stop the dressing room. What's he doing here getting a check if, if that's what he was doing? But uh, there was he, he was certainly on the line, and he was certainly talking to Paul Heyman that night about something. Um, so so uh, the next thing before we get to Terry is you wanted to make mention of the WWE-UFC merger into TKO. And more specifically... Yeah. 
Vince McMahon and how much longer he can actually be part of this group. I think he is, off the top of my head, 16% owner still, so he's still got about 16% shares in the company. But yeah, yeah, Vince McMahon and how much longer he can last in power. It's it's an interesting conversation. The only reason I bring it up is, again, yesterday I was telling you, I was online. Checking, I saw the first headline that Dolph Ziggler had been let go, and I've been a big Dolph fan you know, for, for a long, long time and really vastly underused in my belief. Uh, so I'm like, what, clicked on it to read that. And, well, there's, you know, as everybody out there knows, there were a ton of attached stories, and one of them about was the merger, so I clicked on it. And the writer of this story, uh, as I proffered it up to you before we started, it's rare in, in America here. It's been a while, I should say that i've seen outward criticism like from the mainstream you know to the promotion it's usually just like the raw raw puff pieces and this particular writer was asking how long they would be able to keep vince mcmahon in that position and, and the exact quote was uh facing imminent federal indictment um i i think that's taken on a bit of a uh I think most people don't really understand what a federal indictment means. Basically, it's being being charged. In America, we have the saying, you're innocent until proven guilty. Uh, but, you know, point made that it's, it is it, it is a uh, less so today, but, but still there that, you know, if you get indicted by the federal government, there's sort of an assumption, like Bob Mendez, the, uh, the Senator, uh, Robert Menendez from, uh, uh, New Jersey was indicted, I believe, yesterday or the, the, today's Sunday. So, yes, Friday uh, for uh, overseeing the federal aid over a billion, like a billion dollars, eight, eight, one point eight billion to uh, Egypt. Allegedly, he's been accused of taking gold bars and cash <laughs> from these people or two, you know, which is just as smarmy as can be. I mean, that's, you know, if, if that aid is meant to go to, to Egypt, every dollar of that should go to Egypt. Uh but he's been indicted and he'll have his day in court and be able to. Now that said, you know, in federal courts here, again, not to bore everybody listening because I'm supposed to be a wrestling podcast, but uh, federal prosecutors have something a 97% success rate, right? They have unlimited resources. They can just bury you under anything. So the idea that you're getting a fair trial is, is sort of laughable. Uh, you know, the, the fourth amendment has been sort of usurped like a lot of the others, but uh, uh, you know, so like when you see that this headline, or not the headline, but you know this this sentence in this article that Vince, man, how long can they keep him in this position? Uh, he's facing imminent federal indictment, and you know it's it's a poignant question, you know, for a company, especially today, right? As 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 public image aware and nervous as companies are, nobody want look at you know Bud Light, right? You're <laughs> paying the price. Uh, you know that, uh, so I, I wonder with them. I mean, Vince McMahon is one of those iconic names, right? Uh, but for a company like that, that big, you know, it's I always say those companies that size. One of the things that ECW had in relation, uh, one of the benefits we had in relative to say WCW and WWF then, was that we could we were nimble, we could turn on a dime. Uh, those were the t Titanic trying to miss the, t the iceberg, right? It takes a long time to get those ships to veer. Uh, and, and even bigger now that they've merged with UFC. So it's, I think it's a relevant question. I'd like to see what else. Uh, all I've heard is that he's been investigated for this. I don't know if an indictment is it imminent. Um, well, well let, me, let, so, let me add this. You know they raided his house a couple of months ago. Yes. Yeah. yeah so, so, I mean, it's, so, it's, it's, this, isn't, this isn't like a theory going around i mean the, the no, federal no. government are more than interested in vince at this point oh no question but a raid does not an indictment make no. i certainly push you much closer to it uh you know clearly but 
um, lots of people have that. And I think we've seen that in the last, you know, five, six, seven years, at least that's making news where you see these people raided, you know, these, these dramatic raids and all of a sudden it sort of withers on the vine or they're found uh, not guilty um, or the charges are dropped or overturned. So, uh, you know, I, I think Vince, like every other one of us should have his day in court. Um, but I would imagine there's the one thing and we probably go on a whole episode with this and I'll try to wrap it up with this having been. And when he's, if everybody remember coming back and back and you're probably too young to the steroid trial in in the eighties, uh, you know, he shows up in court with the neck brace on and everything. It was actually 94. Oh, was that 94? Yeah. yeah, It was was shortly before you returned. I think that he uh, was acquitted. So it maybe it was 94. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know how your brain sort of compresses these years all together, but he uh, he walks out on the courthouse steps, and his reply was, "He's Vincent fucking McMahon." And uh, you know the one thing you don't do with the feds is uh, poke them, you know, and 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 spit in their eye, pull on Superman's cape, because uh, they will. Let, let's say I'm the agent that that was overseeing that case. Uh, when I get to the end and I'm clearing my file cabinet, I see that one. And I vividly remember that comment and you're the guy coming in. I go, Hey, keep a close eye on this guy. Right. Keeps it alive forever. Uh, you know, and they might just be unfairly gunning for him, you know? So it's, there's a lot of, of smoke here. I want to wait till we see a little bit more of what did they find in the raid? Uh, the thing that I think mystifies me more with UFC and uh, and keeping him on. First of all, 16%, depending on if it's preferred stock or whatever, as soon as you go under that 50% mark, you can be 49.9%, you're the, you're the minority shareholder, right? So the other, the other guys, I mean, I'm guessing for $9 billion, they didn't take a, min- a minority share. Uh, they, obviously, they've got to be very concerned with their product. It's an amazing juggernaut right now, UFC. But as we've seen, like again with Bud Light, uh, these things can derail fairly quickly. So they, they've got some P's and Q's to, to sort of traverse there. Uh, for me, though, I, I'm I'm curious to sit and watch and see, like, what is the evidence? Like, is an indictment imminent? Uh, and if so, what's in the indictment? Uh, we'll see. But it's, it's, it's something I think everybody should keep their eyes on because it's a huge, gigantic merger. Uh, you know, and, and Vince McMahon is one of those worldwide faces that people know. So it's going to be interesting to pay, pay, keep eyes on. Uh, just a little as, as an aside, Hulk Hogan, who was in WCW at the time, he just signed, and then he ended up being in the steroid trial. I think he was sort of brought in to testify against Vince, but basically testifies for him. Yeah, turned uh, hostile. Do you, yeah, do you know what he, uh, as uh, with being in WCW, do you know what he told reporters outside the court? I can't remember. I remember he had a... He he uh, he basically said, "Watch the WCW pay per view this Sunday, brother." Is that right? Yes. <laughs> True. How fantastic yeah. is that? Um, right. So yeah. I'm going to move on. And uh, you mentioned Dolph Ziggler. Now uh, a lot of people yeah. got fired a few days ago. I can give you the full list. Uh, a lot of them are NXT, but I'll just run through them quickly. Mustafa Ali, Rick Boogs, Elias, Elias, uh, Riddick Moss, Top Dollar, Shelton Benjamin, Emma. Mm, yeah. Uh, the big name, I won't go through the rest of them, but the big name's Dolph Ziggler. You said you were a big booster of Dolph for years, so why? Yeah. Well, you know, when I watched him, I saw a lot of the earmarks that Shawn Michaels had. You know, we're, we'll get into that in another episode. But, uh, you know, my differences with Shawn aside, he was an amazing in-ring performer. And, 
you know, when you see a young kid come up like that and understanding that, like I, which I would learn later that Dolph had this extensive amateur background. Um, uh, again, I don't know. Uh, I'm not privy to their dressing room and the things that go on, uh, but it always seemed to me from afar looking in the few times that I would peek into the company that I would see him and he'd be getting a little bit of a push. And then all of a sudden he would disappear for two or three months. And then he'd be back on. And I remember the one time he was in a uh, handicap match against, uh, uh, I'm so bad with names anymore. The, uh, oh, what's his name? The, the great big guy. Um, big muscle guy. He's on, he's, uh, he left WWE a couple years ago. Uh, big E. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, he's bald now. Uh, gigantic. Just a massive, massive guy. Uh, I've never met him, and his name's right at the tip of my tongue, but he was in a handicap match with somebody else against this guy. And uh, I, I can't remember if this was after one of those world title runs or not long before. And he's getting, so he's been, he was getting this semi push, gone for a while, and I was in a handicap match. And and to me, like that was like the, the entirety of his career this herky jerky, we'll see you for a little bit, we won't see you. And to me, a guy with that kind of extensive amateur background, uh, those earmarks that he had that were very reminiscent of Shawn Michaels at, at a younger age. Um, and and the fact that he was so telegenic, right? He felt comfortable. You could see it on camera that it just never, it boggled my mind as to why this guy wasn't getting like Steve Austin to say, if Vince wants you over, he'll strap a rocket to your ass. And I don't recall ever seeing that with Dolph. Uh, but I, I think that's going to be a boon to AEW. And I'm curious to see what Dolph does now, because again, not being in that dress room, you know, Moose and I were talking last night, you know, I always see like on his description, like he's a comedian, a wrestler, this, that, the other thing. So there are the guys like Brad Armstrong who were amazing in the ring, but getting in front of the camera, they just from where they came up in the business, you know, Brad would get out there and wanted to I'm gonna give a hundred percent. I mean, but you know, that, that, that just really boring blah, baby face stuff. But the funny part about that was in the dressing room, Brad Armstrong was amazingly funny, talented. He'd beatbox, he'd moonwalk, telling jokes. Uh, he was so, so alive in the dressing room. Getting that. Uh, but his in-ring stuff was phenomenal. And I'm wondering if it was something like that or if just something in WWE that somebody had a bug up their ass for Dolph Ziggler. Yeah, We're going to see now. That is exactly possibly right because it's always been reported that Vince McMahon never liked Dolph Ziggler. So if the director of the movie doesn't see box office in you, then you'll never amount to what you could be. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it's always seemed that way to me. And you don't want to go to that because it's, it just suddenly sounds like, oh, you're just going like for the low-hanging fruit. But the, the, the obvious question I would have, and I think every fan watching right now would have, is, okay, if Vince didn't like him, why is he there? You know, if, if, I, if I draft... Uh, Dan Marino will say, uh, to, you know, Dan Marino was an amazing arm. Couldn't scramble. I had bad knees from the time he was in college. So if I'm going to run an offense that requires my quarterback to scramble around just because Dan Marino is available, doesn't mean I should snatch him up unless I want to change my offensive scheme. So like, again, like if that's, if, if that's the case, Vince or somebody else in the company just never saw money in him, then why was he there? Um, it's yeah, it's a strangety. Well, it, again, like one of those things to keep eyes on. I always, I hope the fans watching understand. Please send stuff into James and because you always bring this stuff up to me uh, when the fans send it in. You know, help help fill in those cobwebs. You know, uh, clear those cobwebs out of my head a little bit. Now, uh, I could mention a ton more news, but in fairness, I didn't write any more down. So, 
we're going to talk about Terry Funk. I mean, this really is the big news. Yeah. And uh, and um, I, I want to mention this as well, that Terry Funk's passing sort of coincided with an even more shocking death in wrestling with Bray Wyatt, Wyndham Rotunda. So yes. Terry Funk's passing sort of just got pushed into the background a little bit. Um, WWE did a great tribute to both Bray and Terry on the same SmackDown. I think people were assuming that maybe you get like a graphic or, you know, a couple of minutes of a video at the beginning. But no, they, they really wrapped the whole show around both he and Bray pretty, even Keel, mm-hmm. which I thought was a great um, a tribute. Anyway, sure. let me uh, read a tiny bit for you. Is the death of Terry Funk, August 23rd of 2023, former NWA world champion, a member of pretty much every wrestling hall of fame in existence, including WWE Pro Wrestling, The Observer, NWA St. Louis, and even the short-lived WCW Hall of Fame. Terry was a legend in the Territory Days, a legend in all major promotions in the US and Japan, and he was the giant whose shoulders ECW was built upon. Uh, His health went south around 2016 when he had surgery to fix an inguinal hernia. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And then attended Tommy Dreamer's House of Hardcore shows way before he was ready to. Now, subsequent surgeries didn't help, and then dementia kicked in. And then his wife passed away uh, in 2018, and then his health really started suffering after that. And uh, he ended up passing away at the age of 79. Now, I know you were uh, pretty close to him over a course of many decades, quite frankly. Um before we talk more about Terry, I'm going to give you a quote that Terry has said over the years. Every match is a great match until it begins. <laughs> Sounds exactly like Terry, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm sitting and listening to you read the, you know, that intro there. And uh, in my head, I'm like a, like a real playing. I'm seeing Terry the first day we get picked up for ECW at the airport. Um, uh, he always called me Shano. And, uh, we were in the, in the hotel van. He's in the last row. And I'm like, I don't, I think there, don't think there was anybody else in the van. And he sit behind me, smacked me on the sword, like tapped me on the sword. He said, well, Shano, how long did he ride this train before it runs off the tracks? And the belief was in two, three shows, just be belly up and that'll be it. Right. Um, but every match that, that comment by Terry, every match that I was ever in with him, uh, he, he was incredible, honestly, uh, you know, he, the first time, the first match that I had with him in ECW televised, uh, not the first match, but the first televised match was the 45 minute Broadway. Now I'd never done a, a Broadway, uh, that long before. And Terry walked into the building that day and was really hobbled. Like he didn't look like he could barely stand up. And I went to Paul and I thought like, I'm not even sure I can get through a 45 minute Broadway, let alone with a guy that really can't stand up, you know, like I'm now I'm getting nervous, you know, and, uh, buddy's Terry Funk. And, and we talked and, you know, we went to the ring and I literally fought for my life. I mean, it was like being in the ring with a tiger, you know, you just, and, and what, what I recall most specifically about that match was, uh, the chaining sequences, uh, you know, the, on the mat chaining sequences, uh, and I'm, I'm to this day, even more amazed at it. You know, I'm a little bit older now than Terry was when he, when he first helped us start ECW. When you go back and you watch those matches of Terry and realize his age and the level that he was performing at, at that age in that incredibly physical style is 
mind blowing to me. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm about 50% <laughs> used to be able to do. And, uh, just another one of those things that like, people always say, like, I, I always maintain that the words legend and icon and, you know, that type of, it gets thrown around way too loosely in this kind of country, every, you know, in, the, in this industry, everybody's an, an icon. Everybody's a legend to me. Legends are Bruno, Harley, Terry, you know, I guess, <laughs> you gotta look up pretty high to see where those guys are or faces are on the mountaintop. Uh, because they were amazing at what they did in the ring. Uh, Terry, and, and in that match, the 45-minute Broadway, um, which was the month before the uh, three-way dance 60-minute match, uh, my shoulder dislocates. Uh, you know, we're on the mat chaining, and I go to reverse. Him, oh, oh, oh. He knew it instant, instinctively. Hold on. He rolled over, had, you know, had, had already had a grip of my wrist, rolled over, put his foot in my side, popped it right back in. Like it was just, Hey, your laces are untied. Let me tie it for you. You know, it was, uh, and you know, for anybody that's out there that's in the business, you'll know what I'm talking about when you get hurt in the ring in that moment, zero pain is just go on with it. Right. The second you get back to the dressing room, the pain goes, you know, they say a scale of one to 10, it goes to the 35 choo, straight through and, uh, Sherry Martell, rest her soul. Uh, great, great lady. Um, she came up to me. She had a beer in her hand. She goes, open, open, uh, open my mouth. She threw something in my mouth and she poured the beer in. I, so I didn't, I, I'm thinking it was like a Percocet or something. I like got, you know, a, a smaller, uh, uh, and, you know, it felt like a capsule. What, what was that? And she didn't say, she was hey, just keep pouring the beer. Two or three minutes later, I go to say something. And I went, like my mouth. And she said, she'd give me a Placidil, you know, one of the Elvis Presley things. I, I made myself vomit it up, but that, that match with Terry, uh, was the prelude to that, but he, uh, was incredibly physical in the ring. Uh, and no matter how hard you would push, he would stay there with it. Now he'd get back to that dressing room and be, just be zonked out. Right. But it, again, I challenge anybody to go back and watch those matches. Uh, uh, you know, he's in the ring with some young bucks, right? We were some young lions, and man, he has given up nothing. Like it's not, he's not lost a step on any of it. And if you do see some place where it looks like maybe he's a half a step behind or whatever, realize that he's no matter which match he's in, he's the captain of that ship. I'd recently watched the, uh, the three-way ladder match with, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Simon and, Sam Stevie. And, and, yeah. and Stevie Richards. Yes. And, uh, you know, same thing. I know the match with me and Sabu, the three-way. Uh, Sabu and I, not, not have ever been in a three-way. I'd never even seen a three-way. So, uh, we were all playing off of Terry and it felt the same thing. Like Herky in the moment of the match, it never felt like it hit a groove. It's you know, when you have those great matches, uh, and that is considered one of those today. In my memory, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like that because when you have those great matches, it just reaches a point where it's, it's work, it's work, it's work. And then all of a sudden it goes on autopilot. It's just like, and you get to the dressing room, you're like trying to recall the match in your head. And it's just sort of a blur. Like they just, we did 60 minutes out there. Uh, it, it, it's strange to you. And, and that was because Terry Funk was in the ring and an incredible talent like Sabu and me were both playing off of Terry Funk. Uh, just an amazing, amazing performer. That was a, an incredible boon to the industry from the time he got into the time he got out. Uh, Rick Flair said that Terry simply doesn't get his due because his wrestling prime was too early for cable television. I suppose he's right there, really, because he was NWA yeah. champion in 1975. So what was that? That was 10 years after he debuted. So I think he debuted in 65. Wow. So um, let me just have a look here. So he actually lost 
sorry, uh, he won the NWA world title two and a half years after Dory had lost it to Harley Race. Uh, how did Terry keep the fans interested as far as making it look like he was close to losing the belt? I know you weren't there in the NWA days, but like the kind of like master that Terry was, how would he have gone to all these different places and let people know that there's always a chance I could lose it tonight? That was the magic of Terry Funk. Um, uh, first of all, just in, in, in concert with what you just said about his career starting, I agree with Ray. It's a great comment. Um, you know, television was, you know, in the 60s, was still in its infancy. And, you know, re- re- by the way, a little footnote for the wrestling fans out there. The first nationally broadcast uh, entity in the United States on television was wrestling from from one of the, I forget, not Comiskey Park, one of the parks in uh, like Palisade or Par- Paradise uh Park, something like that, in Chicago. Uh, it was the first on Dumont. The first network was Dumont Network. So yeah, I mean, television was there, but it was you know it was still creating itself. Yeah, you know, but by like, the fifties, by the fifties, wrestling on national TV was pretty much gone. And then I don't know when all these UHF stations came up, and then it just became right. a regional thing again until cable uh, yeah. became prominent. Throughout the entirety of my childhood, like growing up watching wrestling. It was the the territories. You know, you'd get we we occasionally would get Georgia Championship Wrestling, uh, but it wasn't until cable came in we got the NWA, which would later be WCW, and the national WWF show. Uh, up to that time, it would be the local studio wrestling show, which is what they would do. Uh, I had just recently, and, and this is what's in concert with what you had mentioned there, a, a couple of days ago, saw some pictures of Terry uh, when he and Vicky were married. And I literally had to stare at the picture for a while. I'm thinking like, that's not blonde hair, you know, a lot thinner build and everything. I'm looking, looking, and you start looking, because again, they were both incredibly young. Um, and and Vicky was a looker, man. She was a beautiful woman. Uh, yeah, but then when you like zoom in on it and you look at the picture, you go, okay, you can see in the eyes, it, it was Terry. Um, but I think the magic, like, and what you're saying, like, no matter where he was and whatever generation it was, uh, pre-television, the television era of professional wrestling in the hyper years of the 80s and early 90s, uh, much like I just told my son yesterday, uh, the musician in uh, Dando Veins, um, the key, I think, in, in entertainment, whether it's music or it's uh, uh, wrestling or, or some other uh, entity, is to have uh, got all these chords down here. Um is to stay relevant to the time, right? Like if, if you're playing, like uh, everybody's a huge Kiss fan, uh, you can see through Kiss's trajectory, the first three songs, uh, albums sound very poorly produced, like mm. tinny sounding. Yeah. Then they come out with uh, uh, Live, and then the next uh, Destroyer by Bob Ezrin that had this over-the-top grandiose sound, right, that just really took them into a different stratosphere. But then beyond that, like as they moved into the 80s and into the 90s, they would transcend and like sort of bend a little bit to the to the prevailing winds terry did that uh if you go back and you watch terry funk as champion in the nwa back in what the 70s uh if you look at the start of his career and each one of those things terry fits perfectly into that generation uh it's it seamless uh, you don't when you're watching terry funk in the 90s in ecw you don't look and go oh this guy's a relic from the past you know he's something else he was completely relevant in ecw the night that he won the belt at 53 years old the emotion in that building was palpable. Uh, you know, his tears were, were palpable. First of all, he's a great actor. Uh, but secondly, 
you know, his, his tears were real because Terry knew what this meant, right? Like, we understand the industry, the, the work of it and everything, but the, uh, a rising promotion like ECW to put the belt on somebody that age, especially in that style, uh, there was never a time the fans went, oh, come on, it should be Sabu or it should be Taz or some or Sandman. Um, you know, they, they it was a love fest for Terry Funk and an outpouring of respect that was very well-deserved. Uh, in, in my recollection, I don't think I ever saw Terry, ECW or before, ever go to the ring and half-ass it. Um, you know, and, and that may sound trite, like every, fans may be thinking, well, everybody does that. No, everybody doesn't do that. There's a lot of times guys will go, hey, the building's only half full. Let's take it easy tonight. Uh, or you'd come back after really working hard and they'd say, hey, thanks, Shane. I got to go out and work harder, right? Well, yeah, that's isn't that the point of it. Terry Funk never did that. And uh, uh, boy, what a what a blessing it was for me at that stage of my career to get put in the ring with a guy that I think most re- mainstream wrestling fans at that time had sort of written off like, okay, he's had a great career, but it's time to, and boy, did he deliver the goods, not only in the ring and his performances and his matches, but in the dressing room, you know, uh, just sh- sloughing off that knowledge and that experience to the rest of us. Uh, just an amazing, amazing talent. What was the re- relationship like between Terry and Dory? Because is it just like a brotherly relationship, sometimes good, sometimes bad? Because I know they had their issues here and there, but I never quite knew what they were. Nor I. Uh, it's very different styles. You know, like uh, uh, having been in the ring with both of them, both of them great. Um, but very again, very different styles. Uh, I think Dory maintained throughout the entirety of his career uh, the that wrestling purist type thing. He's going to be that Dory Funk through the whole thing. And perfectly awesome. You know, I mean, you can't say anything negative about it. But again, like I think Terry would get in there and bend to like what the prevailing was. He didn't stop being Terry Funk. He would take Terry Funk into that genre. And, uh, you know, I think that, that, that if you look at their, you know, Dory, of course, didn't go to the movies and Terry did. Uh, and you know, like I always talk about those, the, the people who you can't take your eyes off of. I remember going and seeing Roadhouse for the first time. And there was a, a general feeling that, okay, the wrestlers are in these movies. They're going to be okay. But, you know, it's, it's, you sort of, you know, you, you tarnish down the expectation. You know, it's, it's going to be okay, but they're not going to be great. Terry was phenomenal on camera. Uh, and I remember that I'd seen him before that in Tin Pan Alley um, with uh, Sylvester Stallone. Didn't know at the time he was a wrestler. But later somebody said, hey, remember the guy that wore the sausage suit? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that movie. Um, went back and watched it after. Sure enough. Uh you know, he was great in it. Uh, and I, 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 there, I don't want to suggest that there was like, like any animosity between them. I, they always, you know, like when Dory would come in and have those matches in ECW, or we would go to Florida and have matches down at Dory's promotion. Uh, you know, there was like, they were the two funk brothers. This one was going to do this. And this one was going to do that. Uh, I don't recall ever seeing animosity between them. Uh, I've heard the same thing. Like the, the, the times there was distances or there was heat between them. To be honest with you, I'd heard uh, my take on that. The thing, the things that I were hearing was that was more based on wives than, than the brothers. Now, I don't know if that's accurate or not. One thing about Terry is that's, you know, might sound strange is that as well as we knew him, uh, we knew Terry Funk, the wrestler. Very seldom did you see that peek into Terry Funk, the family guy. The only time that I remember seeing it was when we had, he had that show 
in Amarillo, where he wrestled Brett in an amazing match. And uh, he had a great big picnic at his, at his uh, you know, Double Cross Ranch. Now, I, I always grew up like thinking, okay, like once I got the business, Double Cross Ranch is like an imaginary place. Like that doesn't really exist. You know, it's like, like Pier 6, you know, it's uh, uh, or Outer Mongolia. Um, the, uh, and we get there and there's this beautiful spread, this beautiful ranch with a little creek river running through it and mountains on the other side. Massive spread, you know, cattle down there um, and enough food that could have fed the entire audience you know it was just a, just a massive and seeing him interacting then with vicky which vicky was always around when he was on the road at least in my time but then meeting his daughters and seeing you know terry this loving doting father and uh you know it was you know quite a look in his eyes i'm thinking boy i never see that guy at the, at the building you know he's, he's always like game face guy and uh uh yeah he, it was it, you know what a life and you know the career that he left you know, for especially for the kids out there, and I, 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 you know, please don't take this the wrong way. Watch his matches, and there are times when it looks like Terry's doing nothing, and just pay attention. He's doing something there. You know, it's uh, either he's allowing the match to breathe, uh, giving the fans their chance to get in. Uh, you never watch a Terry Funk match and go, God, when's this thing going to be over? Right? Like you're glued to the very end. It could be a 45, 50, 60 minute match. You go, man, it was 60 minutes. The whole, it's only five minutes. Um, and that's because of Terry Funk. You know, he, he, he was born to be in the ring, right? I mean, that, that was his deal. Like he, uh, uh, and boy, what a master he was when he was in it. Uh, I had one little fact here from before that I actually lost. But oh, uh, just uh, as an aside, Dory Funk Sr. was apparently shot during a Texas death match. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, yeah. But for now, ribs and Terry. I don't know if he was a big rib puller in his later years, but apparently was in his younger years. Do you remember any he got you with or anyone around you? Uh, not so much in ECW. Uh, he almost seemed like Mr. Professional Businessman in ECW. Uh you know, you'd see him grab a beer after a match, that kind of thing, but uh, not before, never prior that I recall. Um, you know, I, I think he realized in hindsight that, the, you know, that if this thing is going to work, if it's going to go, uh, because the odds were so stacked against us that it was going to require everything Terry could bring to the ring and everything he could bring to that dressing room. And like I said earlier, my experience was with a lot of those guys, they would hold on to that viciously you know like it was a state secret or something because uh they you know they, i guess they feared losing their jobs or whatever which is patently ridiculous uh perry came in and i can honestly say he would talk to everybody um and you know terry was one of those guys that, like when he sat and talked to you he was talking with you um and paying attention to you and and addressing your things uh and, and for me it was just a fountain of knowledge you know like i had never been a heel uh, you know, Terry had been one of the great heels uh, of wrestling history. And I, I think much of what you saw me take on as the franchise character came from those discussions with Terry in the dressing room and, and not necessarily, but the moves or uh, the angles or whatever, but the development of that character, you know, the, the nuances that character would take on came from Terry uh, both in watching and, and being cognizant of his earlier career, you know, before ECW, and being like in awe of it, but also sitting down like and talking to him, uh, like on the three-way dance. Understand it was never like 
him sitting me and Sabu down and saying, okay, when the match starts, we're going to do this and this and this. And then, you know, I'll leave and Sabu will come and then we'll do that and that and that. And then I'll come back. It was never anything like that. It was just sort of a, you know, wouldn't it be funny if something like this came up? And that was a big thing with Terry. Wouldn't it be funny if, boom, 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 boom. And so like that meaning that, that it may come up in the match, it may not come up in the match. But then when you would see him doing something, like in the, the one that I recall in the three-way dance, was uh when terry would uh, was down on all fours and he was doing the running headbutts um he i'm pretty sure he did it to sabu first and i had just come up off a bump and looked and saw him doing this and the natural inclination was to feed so didn't miss a beat he turned right around and scampered toward me on all fours headbutt and kept doing this back and forth thing and the three-way sleeper you know he started with sabu and I'm sitting there, heart, my back to the hard cam, and I'm looking up at him, thinking, boy, this is perfectly set up. And hit the ropes and then gave it to him, and then we would do this, the switches. Um, with Terry, you could do that stuff. He would leave his body there for you uh, to do that stuff. And now, if he would have thought that wasn't the right way to go, he probably would have ducked his head or, you know, like reached up and stopped me and poked me in the eye, something. Um, Terry allowed you the leeway to be creative with him. And, and that, that made it easy. Uh, the only thing I can come close to like an ECW with a rib and it wasn't a rib per se. It was, uh, the night that we were, we were doing the ECW was doing the Terry Funk banquet and Franny and I are in the room and we're getting dressed to go to this banquet. And it, something felt wrong to me. Like I just didn't, like, I'm, I'm, like it just wasn't there. Like I, I just couldn't see, I couldn't vision myself sitting there in character and, listening to this endless night of Terry Funk's great, Terry Funk's great, Terry Funk's great. And so I looked at Franny and I said, I, we wouldn't show up for this thing, would we? And like, I, you know, Franny being like a year in the business, I was like, well, you, you, you got to go. And uh, so I called Terry and he said, uh, well, goddamn Shane, you can't be there because you know, we're in the middle of this angle at this time. And so I called Paul and told Paul, and and we stayed away. Now the funny thing of that was, Harry would later call me that night and say, "Boy, everybody's pissed at you." And I thought he meant the fans, right? When he meant was the boys, like uh, Taz and and Perry. I remember coming to me and saying, "You know what a what a shit move that was." And Tommy was hot at me, and uh, none of them knew at that moment that Terry. Terry was really Terry's idea. I, I called him with the idea, but Terry was the one that greenlit it, right? And because he knew it'd be good for business, and. Uh, he, uh, the only time I'd see like a mischief, mischievous side, I wouldn't say like a ribbing side of Terry and ECW was like after the shows and we'd be like at the hotel bar or whatever. Again, Vicky was always around. You know, if, if you were talking to Terry here, all you had to do is like do a quick scan and Vicky would be someplace within 10, 15 feet, right? Just a really, really sweet lady. Um, and, uh, you know, they would get, at times feisty in the bars, you know, Vicky liked to have her drink and, uh, uh, you know, she, you know, she would walk by and say, you know, someone would comment to me like oh, an asshole, you know, <laughs> something like just little things like that, that you could tell it was said in like a loving way, but just like this, this dance that they would do, like Terry was like, honestly attached to her hip. Like you could see that there was genuine love between those two. And, uh, you know, it's uh, there could be endless stories about them. I can drone on, so like, it goes with your questions. Well, uh, this is a fun fact that I don't know if you know. Uh, not that many people seem to really know this story, even though I really love it. I heard it quite a few years ago. And Terry Funk actually uh, talked Hulk Hogan originally out of quitting wrestling. 
uh, supposedly, mm. and got him in touch with Vince McMahon Senior originally. But did you ever hear the story that in 1982, Terry? who was wrestling for All Japan at the time, and Hulk Hogan, who was wrestling for New Japan at the time, had a match in Sun City, South Africa. No, I didn't hear that. So you did. So you don't know that? I'll tell you the story. No, so this please, will be, yeah. This will be a fun fact for you. So, as you know, in Japan, in the 80s and 70s, and probably up to the 90s, Inoki and Baba, you know, the heat between those two companies was really intense, you know. Oh, sure. WWF and WCW Monday Night Wars, probably even beyond yeah. that as far as... You, you and know, both very hatred. successful. Yeah. And both very successful, yeah. Yeah. And anyway, Hulk Hogan and Terry have a match in South Africa, and they think, well, no one's going to see it. Hulk, you just win. So Hulk wins. And he said, but on the condition of, you don't tell people about it afterwards. So Hulk Hogan, guess what he does, brother, is Uh he goes straight to the Japanese press and says, I just beat up Terry Funk, (laughs) you know, in South Africa, pinned him, clean as a whistle, have that or whatever he did, however he beat them. Yeah. Terry was so angry uh, <laughs> that, and uh, apparently he may have had a couple of schnifters beforehand as well. He found out where Hulk Hogan was staying, the hotel, and he brought a load of Japanese press with him to try and smash that down the door of Hulk Hogan's hotel door <laughs> to then beat him up in front of all the, all this press. And there's two variations of the story: either he broke down the door and Hulk Hogan wasn't in, or he couldn't get through the door and Hulk Hogan was in. And afterwards, yeah. he conceded that because um, also, you know, he was a bit under the influence as well. And Hulk Hogan was huge at the time. He was like, "Well, what if I'd actually confronted him? He might have just throw me out the window." That <laughs> again, perfectarianism, right? He, uh, yeah, that would be the thing. Like, those guys, uh, you have to understand the mindset. I, I, I'll try to take the fans inside the mindset of that generation, Terry's generation. I mean, is that uh, this? The industry was sacred. Uh, these were the state secrets of the industry and you're going to partake in that because we're allowing you to partake in it as long as you go along to get along. And when you would go rogue like that, uh, there could be some bad outcome, especially in Japan, you know, because you know, the Yakuza over there, they, they, you know, they're also involved in this. Um, I, I'm sure Terry did that in part to save face, right? Like, uh, he had to, uh, you know, whichever, I'm not, was it uh, Inoki's he was working for, correct? All, uh, New Japan. Uh, Terry was working for All Japan. Hogan was working for New Japan. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I had it backwards. Um, so, you know, each of them, like, th- that could have very well, like, derailed. Like, they just sent Terry home and never see him again, right? Because now you, but again, Terry, like, you know, you know, I, my guess on that would be if the version of the story is that, he wasn't in, you know, Terry probably most likely knew that. Right. It wouldn't have surprised me if he called Terry, not that he would have been afraid of him or anything, uh, but that, you know, he's doing this for the cameras, you know, just to save his position. And uh, boy, what a brilliant move. You know, first of all, sort of a bit naive on, on Terry's part that, that, you know, in that time, in that rivalry, that the person is going to keep that to themselves. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and I, you really can't fault uh, Hogan because, I mean, again, there was this rivalry in Japan, and that would have been like a real brownie points for Ho- for Hogan, right, to 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 Anoki. Uh, uh, and so, uh, yeah, that it, it doesn't surprise me at all hearing that story. And again, if if it's what I think it is, uh, it, it just shows you again his mastery, his mastery of of uh, the marketplace his mastery of the industry and of those television thingies right mm-hmm. because uh 
You know, that was a, you know, so few people, if you go back and look, you know, I was just watching a, a, a documentary on Lucille Ball and how hands-on she was, you know, you, at that time, you know, women were like, you know, secondary, you know, and she was like hands-on on everything, uh, both she and Desi. And then later when they would divorce, you know, really hands-on, uh, she is singularly responsible for Star Trek and, uh, uh, Mission Impossible and, and another one. There were three huge shows that she greenlit against the advice of her advisors. Uh, and her comment was that, you know, I, uh, I was a woman in a man's world and I had to be a bigger man than all of them. And, you know, Terry understanding, you know, not just the promotion uh, and not just the fans, but also understanding that the money backers to this thing, you know, some, you know, some, some pretty well-connected people um, that he had to save face. Or he could have just got on a plane and flew home and figured, like, hopefully they won't fire me or whatever. That wasn't Terry. Terry took control of it, and he understood that that television camera was an incredibly potent tool to use. Uh, just to give people an example at home, because, I, I mean, I'm not the biggest, like, Japanese wrestling fan or, you know, uh, knowledgeable at all, really, about it. But I understand that uh, both Baba and Inoki told their top stars, you know, like their Hogan's and their Stan Hansen's or whoever else it would be. Whatever you do, if you can help it, don't even lose in America because you never know if someone's going to take a photo of that and then it's going to end up in a Japanese magazine and it's going to affect your standing here. So, I mean, that's how yeah. serious wins and losses were taken back then. Um, I'm going to make one yeah, more man. thing about Japan and Terry and then I'm actually going to move on to WCW. I want to make a point that Terry debuted in Japan in 1970, before there was an old Japan, before there was a new Japan, for the Japan Pro Wrestling Alliance. That was the company formed by Ricky Dozan. So that's how old school Ooh, yeah. Terry um, is. And a couple of a couple of years later, J, uh, JWA would fall apart because Anoki and Baba left and started old Japan, new Japan. Mm, now, yep. uh, we're going to go to WCW a bit. And middle-aged and crazy is how Jim Ross would start dubbing Terry once he went past 40 or 50, whatever the age was. But Terry was really just sort of, sort of getting started. You said this beforehand. You know, he was constantly reinventing himself. He was seeing, you know, he he went the way of, almost like ECW was. He was someone who saw grunge taking over hair metal in the yeah. 80s. And he was always on the sort of like the wave of uh, a reinvention for the uh, whatever decade or year he was in. But in 1989, he reinvented himself before he was the hardcore legend into just a maniac who would congratulate Ric Flair in the middle of the ring just after re-winning the uh, WCW world title from, oh, was it NWA world title at that time? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, because it, it would merge right before Terry, uh, uh, Ricky and I would team. About 91, 92 is when it would merge, correct? Okay, so uh, I know it's the big goal, okay, but I'm so, I'm so confused in that timeline. Anyway, yeah, don't yeah. don't write in. Uh, <laughs> it's a world title, Ric Flair had it. He just beat Steamboat, and then Terry Funk was the judge, uh, one of the judges, and then he attacks Ric Flair, and then just adds a completely new facet to his character. As far yeah. as, 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 as crazy as he was before, now he's insane. Um, you were with the company at the time. The I was I there quit. that night, yeah. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. Tell me about the uh, memory. Oh, I've blathered on enough. Uh, tell me about the memories of the Terry Funk heel turn, and then we'll get to the I Quit match as well. Yeah. Again, understand where the industry was at that time. You know, so uh, the WWF had started this massive building project, uh, building into like the WrestleManias and all of that. I mean, which had now launched, and WCW NWA was trying to figure out a way to combat against that. You know, Terry Funk was still a very potent name in the business. And uh, Johnny Ace and I had 
oddly enough, wrestled our first match together uh, at that pay-per-view with Samoan SWAT team. Paul Heyman was uh, managing them. I forget if it was on the show or on the pre-show. And so we're in the dressing room that night, and there's another footnote, completely unrelated there, I'll bring up in a second here, um, about that time. Uh, But, uh, you know, Terry goes and has this match. And as Steamboat's leaving, there's a, and there's an after story from, from Steamer about this, uh, you know, we're all sitting in the back watching on the monitor, and you didn't see ECW was still a few years in the future, right? Like, this wasn't a thing yet. And uh, Japan, the, the, the wilder companies in Japan, you know, you might occasionally get a VCR tape or something, and somebody would see, like, a, a match or maybe a spot from a match. But, uh, you know, Terry goes down to the ring, and he's doing the announcing at ringside in the tuxedo. And he gets up and congratulates Rick. And then I don't like complete left field attacks Rick, throws him out of the ring and gets up onto the table and pile drivers him through the table. Like we were on the back and I, my honest to God thought was like, did Rick know that was coming? Because like, that's a dangerous move. Like, like, like yeah. And uh, Terry broke his hip on that. um, trying to protect uh, Rick and on <laughs> In, in the coming weeks, Terry would get on the plane. Of course, he's in first class. And I get on the plane. I'm, you know, walking past him. What the hell is Terry doing? Terry is sitting in the chair head first. <laughs> he's back over. And it's like, what the hell are you doing, Terry? You know, he goes, oh, my hip, my hip. Uh, and during the flight, he somehow managed to talk the stewardesses in. Now, he had to strap in for takeoff and landing. But during the entire flight, he sat with his head in that chair. You know, for me, that would sound ridiculous for anybody else. But for Terry, I was like, okay, I get it. Uh, <laughs> it made perfect sense. But, yeah, it was so shocking at the time that he did that. That was Nashville, by the way. And, uh, you know, when he did that, because it you'd never – like back then, if you remember, suplex off the top rope was like a finish. You know, he had wiped the guy out. And, like, Terry went into this, like, again like looking at him you're thinking like is he just like lost his mind like he's like doing this crazy stuff uh and that's for us in the dressing room so it must have been shocking for the fans to watch it because they had never seen anything like that and uh that would launch that new version of terry funk right the middle-aged and crazy and uh i think a lot of times fans think okay well terry then was like taking shortcuts and i'm sure he was uh, but much like Eric Clapton, like, again, you know, little idioms that I talked to my son about every night that Eric Clapton goes on stage, uh, I'm sure he makes a mistake somewhere. Um, the, the difference is he's such a maestro. He just sort of melts it in and you go, man, that was a great little new lick there. You know, he, he makes you think that was part of it. And Terry Funk was that he was a maestro. Uh, he could make you believe like if the dresser were all watching this and we're all not sure, uh, and as I recall, he didn't come back to the dressing room. I think he left and went straight back to the hotel, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I'm uh, I'd have to go back and, and and check on that. I I can see Vicky walking around in the back by herself. She was dressed in like an ivory colored outfit, and uh, you know I'm sure he would have alerted her, or she just knew how to play along with it if, if he did leave the building. But it really was shocking. I the, the fans were shocked. Go back and watch it, and you see the fans like, like they're just you know taken back at this because they'd never seen it. And that would launch a Terry Funk, a version of Terry Funk that would be a massive draw through the uh, '90s and even into the 2000s. 
as you know, like when he finally went back to WCW and they were, you know, putting him in the gorilla outfit and, you know, doing those types of different things, um, you, you know, you know, you, t- in a way I felt bad about it. It was almost like they were making fun of it. Uh, but again, Terry was such a master. He could make it work. Uh, you know, uh, he, he just had a way of figuring out how to fit into that. And all those guys, you know, we talk about dusty and the polka dots and, uh, and you, you look at those different guys at those times like putting into you know, being put into these like sort of absurd, uh, ca- characters that don't really fit or match who they were, or who they are. And, uh, the best of them, like Dusty and, and and Funk, could just somehow make that work. I think if you put the franchise in a in a grill off, and people go like, "Oh God, this guy's finally lost his mind." Terry knew how to make that work, and somehow it didn't look out of place. Um, but yeah, he I, I I as I'm talking, I can see those other stories. The, the other story about the Music City Showdown, completely unrelated to Terry, was that night in the dressing room. There was a guy that kept coming in with these great big brown paper grocery bags, and. uh He'd come in and talk to this person and leave, come back in with another bag and go talk to that person. And uh, here he was the steroid guy, right? He's bringing these bags of steroids into the guys. And that just not that it had anything to do with Terry, but I'm just like, again, remembering that night in my head and pulling up those, those visuals. uh, And that was like, to me, like people talk about the NWA belt throwdown as being like one of those seminal moments to me. That's, you know, you don't put yourself into that pantheon, to me, Terry Funk pile driving Ric Flair through that uh, table. Uh, that's a seminal moment that transcended wrestling to to like to arch into what was going to be coming in the 90s, uh, mid 90s and, and later 90s. Uh, Steamboat, by the way, I said there was a, a follow up story with Steamboat. Uh, he was pissed about that. He was totally unaware that was going to happen. Really? Yes. And so they had this, you know, this great match. And, you know, he does the favor. And as he's leaving as the baby face, he sees what is essentially an announcer attacking uh, Ric Flair and, uh, you know, left him with his thumb up his ass. You know, like, I don't know if Terry thought to, like, wait for him to get to the back. Um, he should have been cued in on that so that he would have known, like, to make a quick exit to get out of there. And, you know, he said he was standing there. Luckily, I think for, for Ricky is when this was happening my you know i've I've got to believe that everybody in the building would have their eyes glued on is rick moving and and these two what's going on uh but you know again unprofessional uh from the promotion to not at least cued him in that this might happen you know that he could protect not just himself but that angle too because i'm sure any fan would be thinking like why is the dragon going down there to help why isn't he stopping this um uh, just, you know, one of those things. And I just learned that recently from Rick, you know, we were talking about that, that night and Rick had brought that up with, uh, with that being said, now you mentioned hip injury and Terry Funk. Now I may have got bad information here. I heard that he'd actually injured his hip in a subsequent match with sting. So I don't know if I'm wrong or right, but apparently he injured and a test of your medical knowledge, he injured his sacrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what? the uh, tailbone. Yeah, essentially, it's, it's, it's almost like the, is it like the vertebrae sort of within the sort of like well of the hip itself? Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, you, you have the, the what, it's like a saddle, your your the ilium uh, on, on each side. And then that comes down to the spine and you have the sacrum, which is the very lower portion of the, uh, uh, of, of the spine. And in breaking that, you can imagine the sitting, you know, would be, uh, ironically enough, my best friend growing up in uh, football practice. Uh, the coach grabbed him by the face mask and pushed him 
and there was an equipment bag right behind me fell down and broke his uh, uh coccyx or sacrum um yeah it's uh it's quite uncomfortable and especially imagine sitting on you know planes are uncomfortable to begin with right especially when you're on those longer flights but imagine now like that lower bone like in your butt uh you know being fractured and you have to sit on this thing it, it would have had to have been incredibly painful to do um and if i'm not mistaken it, it was that night that he did it but he exacerbated it in the match with sting he was hobbled after that night i believe now, uh, one more fun fact for you. Do you. I don't know if you remember at the time, but you must have maybe looked at Terry Funk and he looked in sort of remarkably good shape. He had really good abs. Do you know why? No. I'm guessing probably uh, hormone therapy? Liposuction. No kidding. Apparently no he had liposuction just before this feud. So that's why he had really awesome abs at, at the time. Yeah. So that's why he looked in great shape. Yeah, well, you know, it doesn't surprise me. He, he by that time started getting his foot into Hollywood, and I'm sure, you know, turned on to the, to the right people. Uh, I, it surprises me in knowing Terry, like I know him. Terry wasn't a vain guy, uh, but I, I again, I think he also knew, like, hey, you know, at this time, like all of a sudden, you're seeing these incredible bodies in the dressing room, right? I mean, it had become like the bodybuilder scene, Lex Luger and Sting and the Road Warriors, and you know, all these guys were you know coming in with these. You know, Bruno used to have that big barrel chest and body. You know, that that to me is what a wrestler looked like. And uh, you know, if Terry was going to swim in that in that pool, like uh, you know, he would know he had to do it. And you know, it, as we know from Hollywood, a lot of people take those shorter cuts. Uh, but you know, again, like the end result of that. It, it, well, here we are, what forty years later, almost still talking about it. Um, and I think wrestling fans will forever. Uh, talk about that because that was one of those moments where wrestling went ink and did a right hand turn into something much bigger that was going to be coming. Um, and it made perfect sense. You know, I, I'd never connected the two until like right now that, you know, Terry had started doing that hardcore stuff, uh, uh, you know, a bit earlier than ECW. He was the perfect guy to bring into ECW at that time. Um, yeah, yeah, it's an incredible time. Uh, another thing about this is another fun fact is uh, an angle uh, with Terry Funk went it went according to plan, but the censors were very upset when he tried to suffocate Flair with a plastic bag, which yeah. drew many complaints from viewers. And apparently, Gary Hart of all people accepted responsibility for coming up with the idea. Um, because it's, I know it's obviously been very, very Terry heavy. It's a Terry Funk tribute show, but yeah. I thought we'd just uh, divert slightly because Gary Hart was at, uh, involved at the time as uh, Terry's manager of the JTEX Corporation, which is just such a weird mishmash of people from Terry yeah. Funk, Dick Slater, the Great Mooter, Dragon Master, who was uh, the Japanese version of Kendo Nagasaki, not the British version, and Buzz Sawyer. But having said that, any any memories, any stories about Gary Hart? Yeah, uh, Gary was uh, always reading, you know, very well-read guy, very quiet. Um, you know, if you heard Gary say five words in a night, it, it was rare. Um, and it was really like one of the things about his character that like, for me, uh, was sort of mundane. You know, like uh, unless he, he'd be standing by the post almost like, you know, frozen there. Very rarely move away from that. Uh and I, and I think something in that quiet subtlety is, is what made that work as much as it did, the way it did. Uh, 
you know, obviously used to seeing like the Lou Albanos and the Freddie Blassies and the Grand Wizards and these over the top guys. Uh, even JJ would, you know, very, very stoic, but would get in there and take the elbow and do the, 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 the wobble on the ropes and everything. And Gary was just standing there. Uh, but he also, and I would later learn this, I didn't know it at the time, uh, was one of those guys that was quietly in the dressing room helping with the booking, you know, and disseminating stuff in the, in the booking. Um, you know, there's a lot of those minds, and you know, over the years, I've met, I've met so many of them and worked for so many of them. Uh, and the personality differences, you know, Kevin Sullivan, uh, very unlike the character he plays on, on camera, uh, very astute to the business. Uh, Gary, very quiet. Uh, you know, Dusty, obviously knowledgeable and, and, and more boisterous, more outgoing. Uh, Bill Watts, the bully. Um, you know, the, all these different personalities. But from each one of them, you learn a little something more. And I occasionally would have talks with Gary, very brief, you know, like you would talk to Gary and ask him, Hey, what do you think of this spot or whatever? And it would be like four or five word answer, you know, and then you have to go sit down and like, what's he mean by that? You know, you're like, you have to run it through your head. There's because there's, you knew there had to be something more of an inner meaning to it. Um, I think for Gary, if, if I may add this, uh, the business of we've been talking about like from Terry and, and so many others had started making this transition from what it had been, you know, black boots and tights to, and we're, you know, by the mid eighties, we're seeing the rock and wrestling connection and you're seeing, you know, ring music and then, you know, the flamboyancy of the business, you know, taking off. Uh, Gary was a relic from a bygone era. And in that black boots and black tights era, that's what a manager did. And, uh, but I, I think more for Gary's uh, point of view, he was so much more relevant than just that guy standing stoically at ringside because he was quietly, you know, uh, generating stuff into the dressing room. And I, and I think Gary knew like, you know, know, some people have the character to be uh, and the personality to pull off that, you know, that brash loud mouth, you know, over the top. Uh, And Gary was just sort of like that guy that, you know, sort of like the, the, the tortoise in the hair, right? Like, you know, it's, yeah, he would just slowly get there somewhere and 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 maintained relevance through a lot of that. For us young kids in the dressing rooms, it's like he seemed like a peg that didn't fit mm-hmm. um at, at that point in wrestling. But you know, again, at, with time and a little bit of wisdom, hopefully, you look back and say, What are you know, a lot of contributions that Gary had made. With Gary as well, I'll throw this in, you tell me if you think I'm right or wrong, is he was different to all the other managers because, you know, your Bobby Heans, your Jimmy Hart's and all that kind of thing, is that you'd eventually get them in the ring and they were just they were great big cowards. They talked a big game. But they couldn't match up to any of the wrestlers, of course, uh, unless it was Salvatore Palomo, yep. who Bobby Heenan beat once. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> with, with, with Gary, he looked more threatening than the majority of people he was managing. Yeah. Which yeah, I, don't, looked, I don't know if that's like reversed an odd bit of psychology because you're too drawn to the manager in that sense. But he was tall. He was menacing looking. He had size. Yeah. He was a wrestler at one point as well, of course. Hmm. Yeah. And, and he had a bit of a look of a you know, a psycho mass murderer, right? Like it's that blank sort of stare, you know, and I don't want to suggest that he was like frozen in the pool. That was a majority of the time, but in those relevant points in the match, you would see something very Toja Yamamoto-ish where he would, uh, you know, uh, you know, he'd start to move towards the guy and, and "Ah," you know, get the crowd reacting. And, you know, uh, you know, for me as a performer, looking at that and thinking with, you know, how hard you have to work to get in a reaction like that. And, you know, Gary knew that all he had, there was so much more tension to the feigning it than there would have been if he had choked the guy for five minutes or whatever, right? He just had to 
feign it. It's it's sort of like the the, the old black and white Dracula movies. You know, you you see you, the fangs are right there, and they cut to the shadow on the wall, and your brain starts filling it in. And with Gary, the same thing. You know, just that subtle uh, subtle brilliance in in wrestling. Now we'll uh, go back to Terry now. So Terry started doing the moon salts at the time, still uh, you know around this time, still a rarity in the United States because I, I think there's an argument of whether you know Chavo Guerrero senior invented it or any that's that's for a different show anyway then he went on to become the hardcore legend as we know uh he was always hardcore for his time period i think he was always a brawler you know in the in the 60s and 70s to to combat dory's as uh, dr tom would say the liquid valium of uh dory funk uh senior's (laughs) style and uh in terry uh terry in the 1990s he would once again be on sort of the cusp of the um uh forefront of thinking and become a hardcore wrestler, as we know today, an extreme wrestler, a deathmatch wrestler, going mm. to uh, Frontier Martial Arts in the early 1990s, and then later Victor Quinones's IWA Japan. Uh, I think um, 1993 FMW he uh, debuted for. Um, let me just have a look what I've written here. I'm sorry, I've written quite a lot of this quite a while ago, so no, I'm sort of reading this great. for a while. Uh, so he would have an infamous series, you know, Deathmatch with Mick Foley, of course, including Exploding Rings, Barbed Wire, C4, Boards, Fire, and more. Why did Terry do all this? All this Deathmatch stuff? Because, as we, as I've said and you've said, and you'll know obviously far better than I ever will, about how Terry was constantly at the forefront of... Uh, he was a modern wrestler in a middle-aged crazy man's body. Yeah. But did he really need to do the Deathmatch stuff? I, I, I no, I, you know Terry's legacy is his legacy. It's it's written in, in in granite, right? I mean, he's he's Terry Funk and always will be. But I think at that point, you know, Terry, you know, in the in the business, I think a lot of fans out there uh, throw the phrase around the most retired man in wrestling, right? He's yeah, retired yeah. 150 that, times. That will be coming um, up later, I assure you. Don't worry about that. <laughs> you know, so he, I, I think what it is ultimately is is, and I get it now. He, he just loved the business. He loved the energy in the buildings. And I saw this in a different way from Dominic when I started taking Dominic on the road with me at the end there. Uh, you know, they, Dominic had reached the point where he thought, well, nobody's going to know me, right? I haven't been on TV for 20 years and, you know, all these kids and all that kind of thing. Are you kidding me? You know, you're Dominic Danucci, right? So the very first time I take him out to a convention, we're sitting there, the first guy comes to the table is, oh man, franchise. I, Oh my God, Dominic! And like walked right away from me. Like, he just totally ignored me. And I think Terry Funk, in his way, just so adored the business. Just it was part of his DNA. Um, that for I'm, I'm sure Dutch will tell you the same thing. Any, any of the boys you talk to, uh, this is a powerful opiate. I mean, way more powerful than oxycontin. All right. When you get it in your blood, it is really, really hard to walk away from it. And you know, I, I think, you know, like my lit, litmus test of coming back was as long as I'm having fun. The problem is I'll always have fun doing this, right? I, I just love doing it. And and I think a lot of that bled off on me from Dominic and from Terry and guys like that, that you'd see them like where most people would say, like, maybe they're overstaying their welcome. But again, I don't think in any of those matches, you go out and watch Terry in the death matches or an ECW or anything in the latter part. Uh, everybody was aware that he could still go. And I think in large part, just, it was career, but the match he had with uh, Brett, at, you know, at his other retirement match in Amarillo, like, that was just a, a classic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you talk about a curtain seller. We were all you know, just like mesmerized watching this guy go because Brett at that time is like, you know, the pinnacle of the industry. 
We will. And, um, uh, uh, I do apologise for putting in that. We will be getting to the Bret Hart thing. We will be getting to the Bret Hart thing. I assure you, uh, because you were also on that card. Uh, before we yep. wander off the deathmatch thing, you must have seen some of them. I don't know if you saw them on tape, or I mean, you've seen some extreme stuff in ECW, which we will get to a little later as well. Yep. But of all the things that Terry did, uh, some of them you very much can argue unnecessarily because it wouldn't have made him any yeah. more or less over. What was the most extreme thing you saw him do? Most extreme thing was an XPW. Um, we, you know, there was an, uh, first of all, there was a huge amount of uh, heat between XPW and ECW. Mm-hmm. Very similar, you know, vein. Uh, I think, you know, ECW had far transcended what XPW would do. Uh, my When I went into book there, my in- intention was to do this slow veering off of what they were doing and take it more into the ECW vein because it really was the same fans. And, uh, you know, some crossovers, but, uh, you know, I think we could have easily gotten ECW fans on board and and kept the ones from XPW. Uh, we were working. I had the title and the way I had it booked out was I think the first show was in, in, in L.A. The second show was in Philly. The third show was in L.A. And then when we came back to Philly would be the, the title drop back to Funk. And the first match in Philly, now I had worked with Terry at this point hundreds of times and had never, ever had to go over a finish twice with Terry, not a single time till this night. Um, earlier in the day, I'm at the, uh, I, when I uh, book, I take like an hour or two in the morning, afternoon, early afternoon, just to let my brain just sort of decompress before I get to the building and take it all on. Now, I've, I've got all my paperwork done. I've got all the matches lined up and what I want to do with each of them. But I just, just got to go like, like disconnect for an hour or two. And I'm in the tanning bed and I keep hearing my phone ring. When I finally get out, I, I keep ignoring it. But it literally dozens of times it rings. So I finally get out of the tanning bed thinking, like, is something wrong at home? You know, like, uh, somebody's trying to get home. And I see it's, it's Rob Black. So I put the phone down. I finish my tan. And I get out and I call Rob. And he says, uh, you got to get down here right away. We, I was staying at the Marriott at the airport, which I always stayed at. They were staying at the Days Inn down uh, near the uh, the ECW arena. And uh, I had to go back and shower and you know get to the building. So I go, he's telling me there's some problem with Terry. So sweaty and greasy, I jump, put my clothes on. My driver drives me down. I walk in. Rob is in the lobby. And he said, Terry's in room, whatever, whatever. And I told my driver, my buddy Damien, I said, give me 10 minutes and then come and get me. So uh, I go up to the room. Now I'm expecting Terry like to be, hey, what the hell's going on? Because like the way Rob is portending this to me, and he goes, well, Shane Douglas, what the hell are you doing here? It's just like Terry. And we go and we start talking for a few minutes. And I finally said, uh, Terry, is there a problem for tonight? Because I, I got to get back and get showered and everything. He goes, well, no, no, I just had a, an idea for a finish. So okay, let me hear it. And he wants to win the title that night. I said, uh, the plan is next time back. You know, we're going to do this, do that. To where my my thinking and booking it was the fans, once after three matches, they're going to figure Shane's the champion, ain't dropping the belt. And when they least expect it, um, finally get it. And back in the same building. So he's telling me the spot he wants to do with Lizzie Borden, who was my valet at the time. Uh that he wanted to pull her into the ring. She had like a cheerleader outfit on, pull her panties off, spank her bare ass, 
And I, I laughed. It was a great spot, right? ECW, that would have been perfect. The problem was we're still getting this XPW, ECW head-to-head stuff. And I said, oh, I love it, uh, but let's save it. You know, we, we got to try to undo some of that tension between before we get to that. And that pretty much wrapped it up. Uh, but he kept, you know, asking me about that. But wouldn't it be great if we and he kept bringing it up like in a nonchalant way like that. Finally, Damien came up. We leave. We go back, get to the building, and we sit down and we come up with a finish. And 20 minutes later, Terry comes up and goes, what was that finish again? I give it to him again. 10, 15 minutes later, again. It's been on all day. Uh, well, what was that finish? What was that finish again? And I'm getting nervous. I'm thinking like, is, like he's starting to lose it. He's never asked me more than once at this point. And so we had a couple setups. Uh uh, one was a camera uh, an actual camera that didn't work and they had been out there all night like they're shooting the show it had a piece of red tape or orange tape on the side of it so we knew which one it was and we go down to the ring now, I understand before this Terry was always snug in the ring um, especially when he would do that windmill on that bone at the base of your neck uh, that was no fun uh, but Terry was never a potato thrower and uh, we get down for the first 10, 15 minutes of the match. It's all Terry. I'm just rubber balling for Terry. And we go out on the floor and he throws my head, the post, the, the you know, the, the metal post that held the roof up right at the end of the entrance. He threw me into that, but he like literally ran my face into it. Like gave me no control of it. Hard weighed me. So I gave him the office. And I said, that's one, and, you know, sort of an inside joke. We then fight over towards the camera and he takes the camera instead of hitting me with the side of the camera, the flat part of the camera hits me with the point of the camera and hard weighs me a second time. I gave him the office again, twice the double squeeze. And I said, that's two. Don't get to three. And we then fought out. I would typically do this. I did it in my match with Raven. I did it in my match with Taz. Uh, we would fight out the back door up the street and come back in. And you would get this amazing boom explosion with the, uh, uh, with the audience. So we go out the back door. Now understand this is where the fans have been lined up all day. And so there's beer bottles and cigarette butts and junk all laying around out here. And my hand was in a cast. I'd broken my thumb and Terry picks up this bottle full of backwash, like piss and spit. And he's hitting it against the brick wall. It's going pink, pink, pink. And the thing won't break. And I'm thinking, I'm already cut open twice. Like I'm, 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 my skin's open, and I'm thinking, what the? Finally, he swings wild and it explodes, and he turns around, and all I can see is like shards of glass sticking out of his hand, and he grabs me. I'm thinking, what the hell is he going to do? And he gouges in. I smacked it out of his hand with my cast, and I said, "Cut the fucking shit, Terry." And I walked up the the street, fully expecting him to be with me. You know, I'm doing the the drunk sell up the street, and I get to the front corner of the ECW arena. I turn around. I'm by myself, the camera, the ref, everybody's still at the back of the building. And Finnegan comes running up the referee and he goes, man, you better get back here. You better get back here right away. I said, why? He said, Terry's cut. He's cut bad. <laughs> I'm thinking, how'd he get cut? Like I hadn't done anything to him yet. So I go back there and he's holding his arm. And he's going, you stupid son of a bitch. What the fuck have you done? He's screaming at me. So I pound on the door because it's pitch black out here. The door opens and I throw him in fully expecting him. There's two steps there to like stagger dance up them. I'm going to, I got to get him. First of all, I got to get to see like how bad he's cut. And secondly, I got to get him back to the ring 
or get the match stopped, whatever we're, we're going to do. And when I throw him, he lays down the stairs. So the stairs are only about this wide. So I'm like sort of staggering, like walking up over him. And I can see his arms. He is cut from here to here, a straight line, like a scalpel. And it is laid open like, like this. It's I can see his, but it's not bleeding. That's the weird part. It's not bleeding. I had a little trickle of blood here and there, but I could see his veins and his arteries and his muscles pulsating. And, you know, I just accepted medical school right before this. And I'm thinking, holy shit, we got to get him out of here. Like that thing is laid wide open and this building is filthy. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm heading back to the ring and I'm, I'm saying, we got to, let's stop the match, stop the match. And he's going, no, damn it. No, damn it. And he fight. And he's cussing me out the whole way. I throw him over the railing and I'm like in my head, like stop the match, finish the match. Get, like I'm panicking because of his arm. And as I'm climbing over, uh, one of the Atlas guys is right near me, but I didn't see any fans close by. And as I'm climbing over. I feel like a real hard kick up near my balls. And I'm thinking like, did the fans just try to, I look around, I see the Atlas guy and Terry walking away. And I'm thinking like, did he just try to kick me in the balls? Like, why would he do that? You know, as I'm prone coming over the railing. So I get back, he rolls in post left. I roll in post right. And he starts, he grabs me and he starts throwing those famous Terry Funk, uh, uh, stiffies. And like every second or third one was pretty live. And so I couldn't tell, like, is he trying to throw a working punch and can't because he's cut so badly or is he trying to throw a potato? And he can't because he's cut so badly. So I took a bump to feed for a kick. And I thought if he taters me with a kick, I'm going to take him down and break his leg. And because at this point, I think he's gone rogue, right? So he goes down, he kicks me three or four times, perfect kicks. So I lay there selling, you know, bleeding already. And I look up, no Terry. Help me go. He's gone over outside the ring. He grabs Lizzie, pulls Lizzie in, and I'm screaming, no, no, no. He reaches up, pulls them off. And I was pissed. And you can hear some of the things like rumbling, you know. And uh, I go over to get him, and he turns around and he starts throwing punches. And he puts the panties over my head, and I'm screaming at him, like, "Cut this shit now! Let's get the match home." And uh, we finish the match, and of course, Lizzie and I, I take off first because I'm pissed, and Lizzie comes with me. But the first thing I said in the dressing room, this can be verified by everybody in the dressing room. I walk in the door and I said, I need a clean towel. I need a clean towel for Terry. And Vic Grimes reaches in his bag and he throws it across the room and I grab it and I turn and Terry's coming in. And I'm thinking of his arm. There's nothing else in my, I'm mad about the panties. I'm mad about this and I'm mad about that. I'm concerned because he's cut badly. And, uh, I haven't had time to assess, like, how did he get cut? That was irrelevant. He, he's hurt. So I turn around with a towel like this, and he comes from back behind and smacks me right on the ear, hard. And I look back at him. I said, uh, Terry, you better cut the shit. And uh, he reaches back and smacks me a second time. I said, throw another one. I'm going to whoop your ass. I'm confused. I'm, I'm concerned about him. Now I'm confused. Like, where are these taters coming from? And he thinks about it for a second. And he brings his hand back and he starts to swing. And I threw with the cast aiming right for his temple. I, I was aiming to hurt him. As I did, uh, Cody Michaels stepped in and pushed Lizzie Borden. And so I had to throw wide to not hit them. Now Atlas is grabbing me. Everybody's pulling us apart, pulling him across the room. And now they've built a wall. 
uh, between me and Terry. And Terry is sitting over against the wall talking uh, to the doctor, but he's yelling out, Shane Douglas stabbed me. Shane Douglas stabbed me. Now, in this dressing room, you've got a bunch of guys from XPW that have no idea about me. And the legend and the aura that we had built around that character, throwing Gary down with the head, you know, the, the halo and everything. I think a lot of those guys weren't quite sure how to take me. And, you know, very different people dressing room and, and, and ring. Uh, but he keeps saying this. So I finally get through and I'm telling him to stand up. He won't stand up. So I grab his head and I slammed his head into the wall. I said, stand the fuck up. And he and the doctor said to me, touch my patient again. I'll have you arrested. Now the security circle encircles me and pushes me back and the entire dressing room's mouths are hanging open and except rob black rob black thinks that this is some kind of an inside angle that we're playing and i'm livid at this point i had literally lost my mind now over the fact that he's telling everybody i stabbed him and the fact that he's hurt and the fact that he did the panty spot and the fact that the match went a different way. Uh, there were just so many things. It was all swirling in my head. And even the next day at the airport, Rob Black's going, come on, come on, man, come on. And I kept telling him, dude, I swear to you on my kid. I swear to you on my wife. I swear to you on my mother and father. There's no angle going on here. Candido would later call me and say, do you think Terry was working an inside angle? Most likely. Yeah. Uh, the problem with that was a, I had never, ever once dropped the ball with Terry, never failed to, to, to live up to anything we had done of anybody in that building that Terry wouldn't have had to pull an inside angle with you. You typically do that when you're working with a, like a greener kid or something, somebody that's not quite sure. And you don't think their reaction is going to be what you need to get. Uh, and it's supposed to be extremely rarely used. And so that at, at the moment hearing that didn't sit, sit to me. Um, it didn't make sense uh, that he would have had to try to do that with me. But then later, when he started working with Jasmine St. Clair's uh, promoter, I think he was still working with him at this time. In Pennsylvania, you had a bond. Uh, you had to have a bond with the state, a license and bond. It was a $5,000 bond. You weren't allowed to, to gig. And if you gigged, they would take your $5,000 bond. I mean, essentially you're losing five grand and in hindsight my guess would be is that what it was like a he was going to stop us from running we were we had sold the building out uh every time we were there and uh same thing in la you know we were starting to roll up my guess is that was terry's business way of sort of you know trying to get rid of xpw and and uh which you know, again, uh, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to see if he'd ever spoken publicly on, uh, you know, commented on that. I have no idea. I've never heard any comment on it. Uh, but it was so left field to me from everything that we had done successfully in ECW. And then to do this, and it took that whole match, like we were on par to, to deliver, a, you know, a classic in that arena, a classic that they would have expected from the, the franchise and Terry Funk. And then suddenly just went off, veered off into this wild, crazy thing. And for a long time after that, I think for the duration of my booking in XPW, there were especially younger kids were like, really like, if I go to talk to them about like, hey, okay, this is what I need to do tonight. There'd be this like, um, okay. Yeah. Like there was like this trepidation there. And, uh, and, and that was hard to overcome with them. I mean, ultimately, you know, it, it, that would fold in on itself based on things that, that, that they had done in, in XPW, the XPW side of the equation. Um, but 
with Terry. Terry and I didn't speak. I think the first time I spoke to him after that was for the uh, Hardcore Homecoming in 2005. And, uh, you know, I knew that that Candido was still tight with him, and I knew that uh, that Mick was tight with him. And I would say to them, I would see him, tell Terry to give me a call. I wasn't going to call him. You know, that was the, the, the onus was on his side of it. And uh, uh, and when we when we did meet that night in the arena, um, what uh, four or five years later, uh, he he just sort of put put it on the table as uh, let's just put that shit behind us and and go on. So let, let's not talk about that and just move on. So I never really had any resolution from Terry on that. Uh, I you know for me, I knew that in doing that show, you you know the the performer in me wanted to say fuck Terry Funk, you know, but the, if you're going to have a hardcore homecoming, you must have Terry Funk there. Right. I mean, that's a necessity. And uh, thankfully we did. And, you know, I had it there and, and, and he and I never spoke again past that uh, about that incident. Uh, you know, so again, I'd be curious to see like if he ever made any public comments on it and uh, if so, what those were. Well, everybody, if you can let us know if you find anything, then send it into the show. I don't know how you're going to send it into the show. I haven't given you an email or anything, but um, <laughs> we'll figure that out. Just very, very quickly, Shane, I just want to pick up one thing. He had a great big cut on his arm. Uh, you, from you telling the story, it seemed like it came from the bottle, and he did it to hmm. himself. Is that what you're yes. presuming? Yes. Uh, there was a camera that later caught it, Smiley, who was the editor at XPW would call me up later, weeks later, and say, I got something to show you. And as I take the gouge from the bottle and smack it out of his hand and start walking away, you see very quickly as he's turning, it's just a real quick sliver. Um, that's, one, again, I mean, like, man, talk about commitment to the art. Um that was not, you know, a little gig or or whatever. I mean, to to cut yourself, especially in a building this filthy like mm -hmm. that, that could have easily become infected. Could have easily lost that arm based on that, you know. And, and I look back and I think a lot of this, like in hindsight, you know, for anybody, it's, you know, most of us had a family member or somebody we know that's you've seen like these weird things that suddenly they're doing stuff that these people would never do. Um, I wonder in hindsight, if Terry wasn't starting to have some symptoms early on of the dementia, um, you know, he didn't seem that way in any way in, in talking with him, but this was so left field from him. I mean, like I, I, I had, you know, Terry again was committed to his art, but I could not imagine cutting yourself that that severely. I mean, that was a major, major cut. And again, in that, <laughs> the stories are renowned. The building had raw sewage coming out of the bathrooms, uh, cockroaches and rats and filth everywhere. Uh, uh, laid open like that, uh, you know, pick up a bacterial infection, pick up something out of that sewage uh, that's probably all through that building, people tromping through it. And, you know, God knows where the, those bugs are all laying. Um, it could have been catastrophic and it could have been very incredibly damaging to XPW, you know, to lose a $5,000 bond could have, you know, it would have stopped us running Pennsylvania for sure. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, there's a lot of those things to it. Uh, again, if anybody out there has heard any of Terry's comments publicly on, it, I'd be very interested because I've never, ever heard. And, and, and we just got back on track. You know, we just sort of like, 
like Terry asked, put it in a box, left it behind and moved on. And I, I think in my head, I'd always assumed that at some point, like we have that discussion. And then it just reached a point where so many years after you think like, ah, why bring it up? You know, you're not going to get any kind of real resolution to it anyway. So uh, just one of those, it's the only negative story I can ever tell about Terry. Um, because to this day, I don't know. And uh, like I said, there were a lot of things hinging on that. Uh, that could have been catastrophic to XPW, which wouldn't have been fair to the guys. It wouldn't have been fair to the fans. And I think by that, after that first show in Philadelphia, we had started to win some of those fans back over to forget about the whole confrontation and, uh, with XPW. And, uh, you know, I was in large part mimicking what Paul had done in ECW early on with the Salvatore Belomos and Stan Hansen's and Jimmy Snook as great names. But it was clear we had to like sort of segue past them and introduced this new generation of wrestler. And the same thing uh, would have been, there were a handful of guys, chaos being one of them, as I recall, um, uh, Pogo, uh, you know, as limited as he was, I think had like a nine one one feel about him. Uh, but it, we were Cody Michaels and I were in the process of segueing to finding that really good core of, of wrestlers that would, would take XPW in that different trajectory. And that sort of marred all of that. Okay, so I'm going to start with another fun fact for you. Uh, another fun fact is that Terry Funk was actually offered the head booking job for the WWF in 1993, which is a bit weird because he's not really known as a booker, really. I think right. he barely did any booking at all. Anyway, um, I suspect on a longer-term replacement for Pat Patterson, who left the year before because of the steroid... Well, not steroid scandal, the Ring Boy scandal. Mm. And... Funk turned it down after realising how much travel was involved and it just wasn't happening. And then there's the old story that I think he was going to be booked for Survivor Series 1993. He found out he was going to be he was going to do it under a mask. Uh, do you, you know the punchline? No. Oh, you don't know the punchline? Oh, so he didn't he ended up not turning up. He ended up saying, Well, what's the point in me doing one shot under a mask to get beaten and then unmasked? And yeah. then he told Vince McMahon he couldn't make it because his horse was sick. <laughs> again sounds just like terry right and it's a, that, that you know a i i think he would have been a good booker um in this sense uh a, a large portion of what you saw in ecw from sabu from taz from me uh candido was a an acolyte of terry funk uh wore those red and black striped uh, tights anytime you get a chance to um, and would play Terry probably better than Terry's playing Terry. Uh, he had a huge influence on that dressing room. I mean, we all looked up and respected him, but also he was giving of that information. And I think he would have been fantastic in, in divvying that out to whatever dressing room he was being the boss to. That said, Terry uh, also wasn't a guy to plant, plant down. You know, like he, he liked to be able to move around as he wanted and, uh, uh, you know, one of the few guys that could do that, he could pop up in WWF and be Chainsaw Charlie or, you know, pop up in WCW in a gorilla suit and then ECW and beat the shit out of the franchise. Uh, and, and somehow he made that work. Um, so there, there are, he had all the key requisite, uh, tools to be a great booker. I don't, I don't see Terry Funk sitting down and putting pen to paper going, okay, uh, let's write this story for Shane Douglas and this one for Scott Hall and this one for, that wasn't Terry. Uh, and, and the one thing about Terry, I think that really uh, bears saying, and I think, I hope it's coming through in all these stories is that uh, Terry Funk didn't need to prove himself at anything. 
And I think in something like, especially as visible a rule as being Booker in the WWF, uh, what if something doesn't work? Uh, might somebody say, ah, Terry's over the hills time to get him out there. Terry in the ring was a master, but there, when you're booking, there's a lot of things that are outside your control. Uh, Terry was the type of a, it, it sounds crazy. Like that you, you hear like the cerebral, uh, assassin and that kind of Terry was like that long before like he came off that crazy coot. And, and I'll tell this quick story, uh, uh, to underscore this, the Terry Funk that I'd always known was this Terry Funk. Hey, how you doing, James? Blah, 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 blah. Everybody does a, uh, Mikey, by the way, does a phenomenal Mikey Whipwreck uh, Terry Funk. Uh, but I called him up one time, just sick and tired of the bullshit and politics. I, I'd had it. Ah, I was sick of it. And I called him, you know, I call him quite often. And I called him, how the fuck have you put up with this shit for 43 years? I'm just venting and going on and on and on. And finally, he he tells me the answer. And the answer literally takes him like 20 minutes. And he keeps on saying to me, well, you know, Shane, I can die. Oh, God damn it. Are you listening to me, Shane? Are you? And he kept saying, am I listening to you? Are you listening to me? And I kept saying, yeah, Terry, I'm listening. Well, Shane, God damn it. I tell you, <laughs> there's only one. And he just keeps mumbling on like this. And I'm going, Terry, how the fuck have you put up with this shit this long? Please tell me. Oh, are you listening to me, Shane? Are you listening to me? And this goes on for like 20 minutes. I'm, yeah, Terry, I'm listening to you. He goes, oh, Shane, the only way you can do it, Shane, I tell you, you got it. <laughs> the only way you can do it, Shane, is you got to be crazy. You got to be crazy. You got to be crazy like a fox. And I'm saying to you, and I'm at home on the phone. I went, like, that's all a gimmick? Like, I, I'd never seen Terry break character in the dressing room, on the planes, in the hotels. And for that one moment, he dropped it and put it right back up. And I went, ding, light bulb. Still learning, right? <laughs> oh, that's how you do it. And uh, yeah, ever the fountain of uh, of information. <laughs> we are going to go back to 1993 again, ECW. Now, I don't think, uh, I mean, you'll know. I know you'll know this, but I'm not sure how many people know that Terry Funk, the most obviously the most famous championship win in ECW was barely legal. We discussed that. Yes. Um, over the course of several episodes. But Terry Funk is actually a two-time ECW champion, if you count Eastern Championship Wrestling, which, of course, we do. Now, I am completely confused as to why the reasoning is. I'm hoping you can tell me why. So, Terry Funk uh, defeats Sabu December 26th, 1993, at an event called Holiday Hell. Mm -hmm. And then he ends up losing the belt a few months later, necessitating a tournament for the NWA title that you win and then the belt throw down, etc. We, we'll get into that story for another episode. It deserves yep. its own episode, I'm sure. What was the in-between point where Terry Funk wins the title and then loses the title, and then where does the NWA title come into all this? It's a really confusing time for the belt. Yeah, it, it was. In fact, there, a lot of that is made-up history. Um, me winning the title, I think, in the in the books, says from Tito Santana. Mm -hmm. Um Tito was gone by then. Uh, Tito and I never, in fact, worked in, in ECW. There was a show. Now, remember, I'm teaching school five days a week at this point. I had gotten onto the plane, and the show is in Valley Forge. So my car is waiting for me at the Philadelphia airport. I had to go into the bathroom. You can imagine this. Everybody's been on a plane. The bathroom's this big. And get changed out of my teacher clothes into my wrestling gear. And you can imagine walk up the hours. Like, Who the hell is this guy? Like where this clown come from, you know? And I get off the plane and jump in the car and drive straight there. Well, they're having a, uh, uh, weapons battle Royal for the title. And, uh, it's funny. You had mentioned the one thing and I'll bring it up again here, uh, in a different capacity. So, uh, 
I get to the building, the match has started. You know, they're already out there. So I'm looking around. Well, everything's picked over. There's like no weapons around anywhere. I go out and try to break a branch off of a tree, and I, I need something to go to the ring with. It's there. They're 15 minutes into the match, and it's a steel cage, as I remember. Um, I finally look, and there's an ashtray over in the corner. So I go over and I pull the metal part off the top, and there's like a you know tube, but you know about 12 inches around. And I just I'm, I'm assuming it's just made of like thin tin or something. So I go running down to the ring with this, the only thing I could find, and. <laughs> Kevin Sullivan feeds over first and I go to hit him with it, expecting it to dent like a garbage can. And it goes, Ka-dunk! and Kevin just goes, yeah, <laughs> it was made of fiberglass. Right. And I hit him with it. And he just sunk right down. The finish of that match was uh, me putting a bag over Terry Funk's head and like basically strangulating him to take the belt. Now, I don't know if that's the segue from the belt to the belt and into the, the tournament, the NWA title came into it eastern championship wrestling was technically a part of the nwa mm-hmm. and uh we were the only nwa entity that by that time could sell a building out uh you know draw a crowd and so they came up with the idea basically to use ecw basically for ecw to commit harry carry so you guys flay yourselves and then help us get this back over and so we'll just transition ecw into the nwa and you guys all come to work for us well, there was no, like I said in, in, in the promo, you know, died seven years before RIP. Um, so that's where Paul and Todd had emanated the idea, grafted the idea, excuse me, of uh, of doing this belt throwdown. And for me, the, the best part of that was how Paul handled me in booking. Now, I'm sure Paul probably sort of knew my psyche and knew I'd probably go for the, the most controversial thing. But Paul never said, you win, you lose. You're going to do this, do that. He would give me a, a range of options to do and allow me, you know, the, the option to do that. And so that's where the whole NWA belt comes into the thing. Well, and I, I, the apologies for interrupting. So specifically, I, I also want to describe it. So the so the old Eastern heavyweight title belt was uh, had like a little blue square in it. Uh, yes, it was Pennsylvania. Used for, yeah. And um, so where did Terry Funk lose it then? That's, that's I, the I, weird thing. The, uh, at that Valley Forge match, I think is because again, it gets a lot of this is made up history, you know. Yeah. So it, I know we had the match in Philadelphia, and I know it was Terry and I at the end because that night is the night where me and Sherry Martell and uh, uh, oh, um, the, the my bodyguard, uh, Curtis Hughes, was Curtis it? Hughes, yeah. yes. Uh, there, there's that picture of us sitting in the dressing room, the memorable Curtis Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I. But he was great. He's a great guy. Uh, yeah, and there's that picture of us and him standing over top of me and me sitting there with the belt in the Valley Forge dressing room and Sherry behind me. That was all taken that night. Uh, so again, this history of I never wrestled Tito, but I beat him for the belt. Uh, then Terry gets the title from Sabu, and then we have to segue it back in a way to arch this back to Terry for what's coming up when we eventually get to Barely Legal. Uh, you know, again, looking back, it shows you the deftness of Paul and brashness really of, of his booking, you know, to make the assumption that you can just make up history and say, okay, this match happened in such and such a place and so-and-so beat so-and-so. Uh, and that the fans, like there were, I don't ever, I've never been asked by a fan, like the question, well, that wasn't real. So like, where did, where did, like, this is the first time we're addressing, I've ever addressed this. And I can recall uh, that there's that early history. That's a sort of like, fuzzy and 
da 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 da, and then all of a sudden, bam! Now you have these guys, and they're they're pursuing. Uh, but you know, it really was ballsy by Paul to to, to take that chance because you know, even then, without the the internet had been started, but it was in its infancy. Um, you didn't have social media like you have today, and everything. But you know, it, fans were especially those hardcore fans would go back and and look into this stuff and research it, and you know, like make the assumptions you know they wouldn't just make the assumption that what they were being told there was always some fan going yeah but hey i know this didn't happen i never been asked that so he was able to somehow get the 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 wrestling audience to swallow and digest that fake history and i think because what ecw became and as magnetic as it became you know and, and what the fans were seeing they were willing to Okay, well, that was before I can't started coming. So like, I'm just going to pay attention. Like, this is the real history. And the one big no noticeable difference, if you paid attention, was when I had the Eastern Championship belt, I would always call it the heavyweight title. We would never call it a world title. That was the whole purpose of the NWA tournament and the swerve was to now, we're wrestling still in the same buildings and everything, but it's now a world title. Um, and, you know, and it's, Again, nobody's ever challenged that, you know, so it's, uh, you know, we were wrestling in, you know, part of the country, you know, hardly worldwide. Um, but, you know, it, it worked again. I, I, I don't think today that you could get away with a lot of that stuff because there would certainly be something going, yeah, but, yeah the all the naysayers on social media. Uh, but at that time, Paul was able to just create fake history. And I, I guess one of the earliest examples of fake news, right? Like there's mm -hmm. this, this title uh, switch that never happened. The, the um, Rio de Janeiro uh, thing with yes. all, like like WWF with, with, various uh, titles. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Ted DiBiase and, and Pat Patterson, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, 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 yeah. I actually saw the video uh, the first time Pat Patterson turns up onto WWE. It was WWF at that point. It transitioned that year in '79, I think. And just explaining where this belt comes from and where the old North American title for yeah. people who don't know there is a wwf north american title very briefly that was ted dibiase season and then buddy rogers also won the uh wwf yeah. title in rio de janeiro as well anyway blah 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 yeah yeah um so uh we'll we've got about i don't know 20 minutes left i'm gonna see how much of the stories we can get through um Good. one thing speed them up a bit uh, no no don't you worry i'd far prefer I'd, trust me i'd far prefer three in-depth answers than 10 rush ones i'd promise you yeah. i will uh shall we okay i'm gonna skip that one and i'm gonna skip that one uh you had terry funk's last ever match in ecw a three-way dance along with ecw champion sabu talk about the setting up of that match and your memories of winning the ecw title for at the time the third time and yep. did you know at that time that that was basically terry funk's last match in the company i i don't didn't uh as i recollect again like we're going back so far that kind of stuff, like Paul was usually tight. Like somebody would leave and, and you'd be like, wait, wait, they're in WCW now? Like it was a, a shock to us too. And I think part of that was because Paul wanted to keep as much of that stuff on, under the lid as he could, uh, fearing that if wrestler A would leave and go to WCW or WWF, that that might do some kind of damage to, to us. Um, and, yeah, and, and probably some wisdom in that. And again, this is that time of, like I said, with the fake history just now where like, stuff like that you want to need to know basis right and uh uh you know paul would tell you it, only if you needed to know and, and maybe then at the last minute um but you know it, it was uh a different time in wrestling and you know we were trying to pull something off 
that had never been done. So yeah, there was no roadmap. You could just go and say, well, what did Memphis do? Or what did you know Portland do? Or what did Mid-South do? Uh, you know, we were really flying by the seat of our pants. And, uh, and as I recall, there wasn't like, like a big, at the building that night, there wasn't like, hey, thanks, Terry, you helped launch us and all that kind of stuff. It was just sort of like, you were at a match and a show and you left and went back to the hotel and like Terry never came again. Um, and then would shortly after that pop up in WCW. Uh, or was it no was no it WWF? It, first. Yeah, it was WWF and then Chainsaw Charlie, and then he'd go to WCW as the commission. There you go. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And uh, you know, like and seeing that guy, it, there was at the time that he left. To me, in my head, there was no like negative side to that. Not that you didn't realize his impact on ECW or just how great he had been to the dressing room, but he had done everything. Like to me, winning the world title again wouldn't have really been a big pop, right? He's Terry Funk. Uh, it was that first one. And the fact that the first one sold as saliently as it did, as as uh, real as it did, uh, I think was a testament again to Terry. You know, like he, he you never watch those matches and think like, boy, he's, you know, he, these guys are helping him or like, you know, if anything, it was like, we're hanging on for dear life. Um, again, performed at a level that was astounding at, at 10 years younger than that, let alone at the age he was. And, uh, uh, you know, him leaving, going someplace else seemed seamless. Like you, you knew that Terry was always going to go somewhere. And no matter how many times he said he'd retire, you knew he was going to be in Japan again, or, you know, one of the big uh, federations after that, um, you know, he, he'd left an indelible mark on the business for those of us in the business. I'm sure for the fans as well. Uh, you know, if you came up at my time and, and in those dressing rooms, uh, again, there were a lot of those guys that would sit over there and, you know, like, you know, I've told the flares for a million times that, that would hold art and guard that information and try to, you know, uh, by the way, it's a little insert here that's completely unrelated. I had read recently, uh, one of the takes is uh, that Shane Douglas always said that Ric Flair held him down. I've, if I've said that, I didn't, those words that I don't think they ever came out of my mouth. I never saw it that way. It was more like the political move of like, hey, we got to keep these guys separated from us. It wasn't because I was never working in, in his in, in his circle. Um, but, uh, Perry was the complete opposite. You know, he was very giving of that information and he wouldn't just walk up and say, Hey Shane, I think you should do this or do that. But if you went up to Terry and said, Hey, can I talk to you about something? Man, you'd sit down in the, in the fountain of information would just open. And it wasn't like, okay, you should do A, B, C, and D. It was just like stories and, Hey, remember that match we had here? And when you did this, or it was just like, you know, just sitting down and bullshitting and you'd walk away and boom, your brain was, you know, three inches bigger. Uh, and I, I surmised that he had done that pretty much probably everywhere he went. Like once he had reached that point, he knew that that was a, an asset for him. Like much like Steamboat did, right? Uh, Dustin with him and I'm with him. And, and they kept putting these young guys that he knew that they, everybody knew that Ricky could pull us up. Uh, Terry Funk in a, a, in a far more subtle way, I think had an even larger impact than, than Ricky did. And Ricky had a massive impact on the industry uh, to my generation. Uh I, I shudder to think what the franchise would have turned out to be. I think a lot thinner of a character had I not had the opportunity to work with Terry Funk and, and just sit under that learning tree. Uh, you know, he, he was, uh, as I've said, oftentimes in this podcast and other places, this is an incredibly difficult industry to pick up. Uh, being a great athlete is a part of it, uh, about that much of it. Being a good actor is about that much of it. And there's a whole lot of like, just unspoken X factors that, you know, you look at the undertaker, very different character from Steve Austin, very different character from the rock, 
but each of them massive in, in their own ways, right? Uh, because they all bring different skill sets. Terry had a, a knack of being able to work with an undertaker and get him over and teach, work with an Austin, work with a Douglas, work with all these different people. And somehow afterwards, after working with this old guy, we're all worth more than we did going in. And uh, I think that's Terry's lasting legacy to the industry. Uh, there, his, his impact will be felt for, for at least another decade or two in the business. And down the road, I think you'll see a lot of Terry funk isms in the business that, the person watching at that moment might not go, oh, that's Terry Funk. He got that from Funk. But rest assured, the purists will look and go, man, that's classic Funk, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it really is that 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 stamp, that tattoo on the industry. As you, uh, we've said a couple of times, Terry retired once or twice in his career. <laughs> now, uh, there's, there's a very famous one, obviously, in the early 80s, you know, where it goes, forever, 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 and, you know, repeats again. Yeah. That wasn't the first time, apparently, he had retired, <laughs> yeah. uh, even though that's the most famous. Apparently, he'd done some sort of retirement thing in the late 70s as well. But uh, the most famous one is in Japan, and the second most famous one is <laughs> in ECW. And there's a big banquet that you now revealed to me that you weren't even at. So that's, yes. that's boxed off at least <laughs> one of my questions. I was going to ask about New Jack at that thing. Because <clears throat> he turned up in a pink pimp suit and then um, yeah. apparently wouldn't get off the microphone. Anyway, um, classic so, Jack. So you weren't there, so I can't ask about that. But what I can ask is about the events at the Double Cross Ranch and uh, Bret Hart in the main event with Terry Funk in Terry Funk's retirement match. Uh, which I think he retired for about, what, two months? And then he went to the WWF. Uh, but the yeah. story behind the scenes is... And similarly, uh, 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 the film Beyond the Mat, and Barry Blaustein was there for it as well, recording, mm, Yes, that Brett wanted to lose. He was the reigning WWF champion and said, no, Terry's a legend, I will lose to him in his retirement match. And I, I've spoken enough about it. You talk about Terry and Brett and that match, and even at Terry's advanced age in his mid-50s, still put on a clinic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. And, and that was our takeaway. Oh, you know, again, I said earlier, it was a curtain sellout, right? You know, we're all watching because we're all fans of Brett, but also like in love with Terry, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a part of his performer, like, you know, you realize where he is in his age and, you know, and Brett's at the pinnacle of his career. Um, you know, and hey, Moose was asking me last night when he came on and he was wrestling, uh, uh, Pierre, um, uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, uh, he uh, said, like, uh, did you and Brett get along? I said, oh, yeah, we get along great. Uh, I, I think in large part because I've uh, you know, always been in awe of Brett. You know, like, he's one of those guys when I was a kid coming up and thinking about getting into business, I would watch, much like Brad, like, think that that's what it would look like if it were real. But it's like, you know, everything he does was so crisp and so, like, right on on target, on market, uh, on mark. Uh so the world at the curtains, we know what Brett can do. And we know that Brett's going to try to carry him through, but like, you know, Terry was advancing in years at this point. And my God, it, 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 we were all silenced. Again, like watching this master at work, it was like Van Gogh, like the day before he died, paying another iris, right? It's, uh, you know, looking at this going, Woof, man, like this guy is, and Brett, you know, ever, you know, ever the true professional was insistent, you know, he's going to put Terry over. This is the right thing to do. And uh, the referee, oddly enough, was a guy that had come up with Terry, you know, and it was it was at the show and uh, refereed that match. Terry insisted that he be there for that match because they broke in around the same time. 
you remember his name? And the oh, referees? I can't. I, I've got it. The name is. Do you really? Dennis Stamp. Yeah, Dennis Stamp. There you go. Like, you see, it's there in my head. I, if you paid me a million bucks, I would have been able to come up with it. But yeah, Dennis, a good guy. And I, I just saw him like in the last three, four, five years. Uh, any, anyway, I, I'm, my brain's sort of wandering off. I, I'm, I'm right now in my head. I'm, I'm, I'm back in that arena and you know behind the curtain watching. And Tommy was right next to me, and we're all just like spellbound watching this match. And like you knew, even like just as they were entering the ring before they even touched. Like, man, this is history. You know, this is like an incredible like chapter of our industry. And uh, the whole show had been great. I think I worked Tommy that night. Uh, Tommy and I always had good matches the night off. Uh, and the card was all strong. It was a great, great show to watch and be part of. And I think the whole experience of that, like having everybody over to his house. I mean, you can see Terry was proud of all this. He was proud to show his family off, proud to show the double cross ranch uh, that I thought was imaginary. Uh you know, and just like take like like soaking all that in, like while you're there, and thinking like, man, like even at that time, like long before, uh, you know, Terry would be, you know, would start to be on the downward hill of his of his life. Uh, you know, just again, just the awe of it, like seeing this guy pull this off, sold it out. Uh, you know, Amarillo was a buzz. If you'd go down to the gas station, down to the, the big Texan to get the five pound steak, was, Hey, Terry Funk this weekend, you know, it was like a, the big thing in Amarillo. And, uh, you know, I'm glad like in hindsight, now that Terry's gone, that he, you know, had that chance. That's a rare thing that somebody at his age can come into the, the business and you don't feel like, Oh, okay. They're, you know, taking it easy because he's older or whatever. Uh, like you, watch Terry get into the ring with guys a third his age and, you know, and deliver the goods. Um, but that weekend was so special because, and you could feel it then. It wasn't like it, with the hindsight of time, it was back and say, okay, it became this iconic moment. You knew like, and, and just standing behind the curtain and watching the fans come in and watching the reaction of the fans to the matches, being in the ring with Tommy and getting the reactions that we were getting. It was clear that, that everybody on that card were people that Terry Funk had sort of yanked up you know, to pull up to the top side of the card uh, and, and and put that lasting imprint. And, boy, I, you know, I wonder what the business would look like if it weren't for Terry Funk and and all those latter years, you know, and, and all the great stuff that he had done and the people that he'd helped and taught. Uh, where would the business be? I think it would look a lot, uh, a lot dingier, a lot grayer, not quite as technicolor as it was with Terry Funk. Uh, with Beyond the Mat, and I had to, I will never forget the name Dennis Stamp. The reason being is because in Beyond the Mat, there's two, there's like pre-meme memes out there with Dennis yeah. Stamp. One of them is, I'm not booked. And he's having yeah, an argument yes. with Terry about not being booked. <laughs> and then he turns Staying up. Staying outside the... Yeah. And, yeah, then, yeah. And, then, uh, and then the other one is him in his underpants, jumping down, up and down on a trampoline, saying, you never know when Vince is going to call. And yeah. it's like you're, <laughs> yeah. It's like you're in your mid fifties. You're Dennis Stamp. No one's like no one on the national stage has heard of you, and he's still just doing the trampoline thing and uh, the exercise. Yeah, yeah. And it's like I wonder how many people in his position who you know were wrestlers in the sixties and seventies who still thought in their mid fifties or wherever you never know when Vince is going to call and need you know a new top heel to go against yeah. Steve Austin or whatever at the time. Yeah. Yeah, a lot. You know, it's you know the, the it's the thing that I've always been perplexed by. You know, is as you know, as the TKO launches, you know, with Endeavor, is 
you know, the business has, you can argue on both sides of it, rightly or wrongly, uh, transcended beyond, right? Like where I was a, a young kid sitting in a dressing room and had the Terry Funks and the Brunos and the Dominics and 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 all sitting there, literally all fountains of, of, of experience. The kids today don't have that luxury. You know, they, uh, you know, they're sitting in a dressing room largely with their peers. And, you know, when I, I think back to when I've, I've often belabored this point, and I, I don't think wrongly, uh, of how difficult it was to pick this business up, to like, to even become decent at it. And I am certain without question, if it hadn't been for all that wealth of knowledge that was sitting in those dressing rooms, the black Barts and Pez Watleys and all those guys, uh, boy, when it came time, like from, for me at 11, 12 years into my career and to become the heel for ECW, uh, my initial thought was just do opposite of what you do as a baby face. And boy, if it was just that simple, there, there's so, so, so much more to it. Uh, back then the heel still led the match, uh, which meant you had to know your opponent, what their moves were, what their approach to the matches was you don't want to go in there and just make it a Shane Douglas match. You want to be Shane Douglas in a Taz match and a Sabu match and a Terry Funk match and, and accentuate each one of their strengths and vastly different performers. There's no way I could have succeeded at being the franchise. If it weren't for all those people, I always mention and guys like Terry Funk that as a, green horn heel that had never done this but had been around the business i remember it striking me uh the first night that paul wanted me to do the five minute promo and he kept you know give me the hold on hold on what do you want me to say? hold on hold on my music's playing and i and i yelled at paul what the fuck do you want me to say and he said whatever you want and it threw me for about a second and a half like terrified me what, what do you mean whatever i want and then I started thinking of those guys. Like, this is what all these guys that I mentioned, what Dominic and Bruno and Black Bart, all these guys that I had sat in the dressing rooms with and worked hard in the ring with and been pulled by the nose along that didn't know shit. This is the moment that I show all of those guys that I'd have picked up what they were trying to teach me or I didn't. And you know, I think it would have been dishonorable for me or or a shit thing for me to go out there and just drop the ball and just show he's not up to this uh you know the, the bookers dusty and, and bill watts and i uh, and just uh, paul Heyman and you put all of that together and think like shame on me if i hadn't been able to deliver the goods on that right because of all, being in the ring with all those guys and guys like terry funk invaluable you can't put a price tag on it I'm going <clears> to, <throat> well, I'll wheeze into the microphone there, excuse me. I'm going to leave you one <laughs> more fun fact with Terry Funk, and then we'll shut this podcast down. Is that in 1996, he convinced Brian Pillman that it would be a good idea for Brian to uh, get tickets to the Super Bowl and chain himself to one of the goalposts. <laughs> and the reasoning yeah. was, is that, hey, mm. apart from Hulk Hogan, for a brief period, you will be the second most famous wrestler in the world. Yes. <laughs> That's Terry, right? I mean, that that's yeah, anybody else will go, yeah, but Terry, I'm gonna get arrested or you know, whatever. And yeah, you know, and I'm telling you, when him saying that, he he was correct, right? I mean, like if everybody, who the hell's the guy, <laughs> you know, uh, but you know, only Terry would think of that. Like, you know, it's like also go, hey, it's Super Bowl, you got, you got the pizza ready, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. And Terry's thinking this, right? It's mm -hmm. uh 
Classic Terry Funk. There we go then. Uh, to wrap it up then, I don't really have any plugs to do. I've got books, you can find them. There's links in the description of this video and every video and every podcast we do. Uh, we are out every single Tuesday. Franchise University with Shane Douglas, of course. And someone wrote in and said, because I couldn't think of an outro because uh, we hadn't worked out really what the podcast was called. And someone right. said, why don't you say class dismissed? So I'll leave it up to you to say goodbye and uh, do the outro. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Thanks for being here with the Franchises uh, Forum or Franchises... University. University. Fan- Franchise University. Uh, let me start that over again. We'll just cut that one out. Uh, nope. We're leaving thanks- it in. <laughs> <laughs> Sid, right? Sorry, big boy. We're live. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, everybody. Thanks for coming sitting under the learning tree at Franchise University. Class dismissed. Ha, ha, ha.